Welcome to an episode of the Crypto Basic Podcast. This one is on DeFi, decentralized finance. It's kind of an overview and a quick rundown of different pieces of that DeFi space. It's very long and it's very old. This is almost a lost episode. We recorded this back in, I believe, December of 2020. So you're going to hear us mention some things about the prices that make no sense. And you're going to realize that we haven't put out an episode in six months. We also, before this episode, hadn't done one in months. The short version is we were never able to make any money on the podcast, and we started to only do this kind of in our spare time. In order to make money on the show, we would have had to take money from people that we didn't want to take money from. Uh, Patreon kept us afloat for a while, but uh, we eventually did run out of money. Uh, it's been a fun experience, but definitely negative one financially. So this episode, Jason had been editing our podcast for free, but this one was super long and it takes a really, really long time. So Jason had been doing it in his spare time and it just took a long time to to get ready. And then even after it was ready, uh, I've been traveling a, a lot. So I dropped the ball on actually getting it out there. So I just wanted to preface this episode with all that information. It's kind of a lost episode. Uh, this is Kareem's baby. He did all the research on this one. So those of you who are a fan of the brain that Kareem has are going to love this episode. He's got a lot of information. Um, Adam and I are there. We recorded this kind of even on a whim. I was in Colombia. Kareem had finished his thing and Adam was barely ready and we uh, just fired up and I wish we were able to do that more often. There's been a lot of stuff that's happened in the crypto space since that I would have loved to comment on. But the end result is when we started this podcast, we just knew we wanted to talk about crypto. We wanted to bring it to the world and we didn't know all the different things that you needed to do from an SEO perspective or from a, an ads perspective to try and actually make money on a business like this. And we refused to take any money from uh, any of those scummy ICOs or any of that stuff. So anyway, this is it. This is a, a lost episode on DeFi from the Crypto Basic Podcast. I hope this can help people. Obviously, the pricing is going to be a little bit outdated. The states that the projects are in might seem a little anachronistic, but the fundamentals are there. The projects that we talk about are still interesting from the perspective of how the projects work. We still do chat in the Discord now and then, and we still do, you know, things on Twitter and all that. So feel free to reach out to us, and we will probably try to answer questions still. But whether we get another episode out there, I don't know. For now, though, enjoy this episode on decentralized finance. What would you put the decentralization score for Ave? Double A V E uh, on a scale of like A to D. <laughs> purple, <laughs> definitely purple. Welcome to another episode of the Crypto Basic Podcast. Brent's here, Kareem's here, Adam is kind of here. You'll see what I mean. He pops in and out of the episode, but. We're here with a DeFi deep dive for your listening pleasure. And 
if you're here for the DeFi deep dive, make sure you skip to five minutes into the episode because since it's been so long, some people listen to us for just us. So I wanted to go ahead and give them five minutes to catch up. So if you're just here for the DeFi, skip five minutes into the episode. You'll skip past all the nonsense and you're going to hear the breakdown guided by Kareem. Otherwise, if you want to listen to the nonsense, that's about to start right now. It's Crypto Basic Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the Crypto Basic Podcast. My name is Kareem Baruke, and I am here with my co-host, Brent Philbin. Whoa, ho, hey, it's Brent. And Adam Levy. Yo, what's up? It's been a while. Yeah, it has been a while. I can definitely say I miss you guys. I'm very excited to talk DeFi, but... Brent, you are in Colombia right now. What? I am. I have halfway moved to Colombia. I had a conversation with a listener on Reddit recently about this too. They randomly commented on one of my old things and said, hey, when are you ever going to release a goddamn episode? And I was like, oh, actually, uh, you know, Kareem and I have been talking about uh, maybe shortly. I'm in Colombia, where Kareem's from. So we switched. Kareem's in the US. I'm here. And it's awesome. Quick anecdote. I go to this coffee shop that is like a Miami Ultra Lounge, like five stars. You'd have to pay 20 bucks to even get into this place in the U.S., right? Forget ordering anything. The other day, me and my girlfriend were there. We got lattes with 24 karat gold on them just to be <laughs> idiots. It's small- gold is also cheap in Colombia, right? <laughs> it was $4 each for everything together, like, like two lattes, right waters, uh espressos and the internet there is 70 megabytes per second it's great i love this country yeah well i'm biased but it is a beautiful country the food is fantastic Mm -hmm. i'm definitely a little jealous i'm definitely wishing i was there but not everybody can go to Colombia on a whim (laughs) i'm I'm still in la i haven't done anything um cool uh yeah i mean i'm kind of <laughs> jealous i'm seeing brent's posts on instagram it's the most posts or facebook or whatever social media device he whatever he uses every day it's just like hey look my my apparently he just judges the place that he's in by the speed of the internet which you know is a good you know and you're getting i mean brent that if you want to turn him on just tell him you got 600 megabyte upload speed and he is there Mm-hmm. that's like the new my parents are out of town and I'm, <laughs> I'm there oh man well i gotta tell you guys we've been thinking about this episode i feel like this episode started brewing again going back to adam you when you first talked to us about uni uh sushi swap a couple of months ago but um, our last episode by the way was september 3rd i just looked wow i mean this is why we gave five minutes at the beginning of the episode i have also switched kareem's place in more ways than one more ways than one because i now live in his country and i don't know what the goddamn (laughs) price of bitcoin is ever so i keep getting notifications from delta i have it set up to tell me when there's a five percent drop every single time i get a notification it's like five percent drop i'm like oh shit oh wait it's 15k oh wait it's 17k like i thought it was 10 so this is fucking amazing i I had a friend uh we have a little group chat that we talk uh some friends in la and he made the joke of like it's gonna go to 6k before it goes to 15k when it was at like 11k and literally it was like two days later i was like i like pinned the message i was just like well uh, (laughs) yeah great call buddy 
No, I think it's it's pretty clear. Like the buzz is there, and what's interesting is that there was a mini. There's there's like a mini bump and a crash. There was like a DeFi buzz, a DeFi kind of popping of interest, and now the beginning of what appears to be a massive Bitcoin bull run. Right, like not saying I know how long it's going to last or anything like that. Maybe we undo some of those gains, but clearly Bitcoin's been blowing up, and it comes right after the quote-unquote DeFi bubble burst, right? So I think this is really interesting because as we enter a possible new bull run in the market, um, there's a lot of value in going back and looking and saying, okay, did the DeFi bubble burst? Is it is it like what is going on in DeFi? What has been happening on Ethereum? I mean, why is this term becoming so popular? Why was so much money in, in some of these projects, right? And why were some people being so extremely... Uh, what's the right word? Not skeptical about their decision-making process and just firing away at anything. I mean, there may be a specific story. Are you I don't know talking, talking about, about like, like, are you kind of just, I don't know if you're alluding to anything or foreshadowing because I don't really know exactly what's going on in this podcast. I just, I'm just, I'm just here. I showed up. I heard these guys are doing a pod. So I want to hop in, <laughs> but I will say that that does remind me of the ICO craze where, it's just like there's an influx of people that were not a part of the ICO craze. We're like, oh, DeFi, what's that? I can farm. Ooh, honest work. Like, let, let, let's just get in there and do that. And all of a sudden, impermanent loss is the new phrase, <laughs> you know, and then right. people just get wrecked. Some cu- couple whales go in, you know, and they make a bunch and then they decide to just, I guess, there's all these terms, you know, like what, uh, a rug pull. Yeah. Where they're just like, all right, like time to get out of whatever DeFi coin I'm in and, and, you know, cash out. And then all of a sudden these like kind of amateur crypto Bitcoiners, you know, Ethereum users are just getting annihilated and it's tough. It's dangerous. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of that. And Brent, you were probably alluding to multiple things. There was the yam, no, just one. the sushi, yam. There's okay. One of those. <laughs> Well, there were many of those. To be I know he was just taking his head. I was I was going to list a bunch of like things that happened, and friends like, no, no, no. It was so. No, no. So this Brent is a was only the Kareem game. story. We'll get to it later. Uh, was it the pickles? <laughs> was it the you know? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> that's hilarious. Okay, okay, that's fair. Yeah, we'll get to that later. I didn't think of including that in here, of course, and of course, it was the first thing you thought about. All right, so Brent has a surprise for everybody. Okay, Kareem. All right, sorry, it, sorry. It's silly. I didn't mean to get too silly. There no, is no, a no. It's okay. It's okay. Really, it is educational. Right, but let's get to the meat of 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 what today's really about because we often cover. You know, if you listen to this show. <laughs> regularly regularly once yeah. every night uh, uh, you know, if, if you've been with us for like the last couple of years you know that we cover scams a lot we cover red flags a lot we talk a lot about like being perceptive about what's coming and this time i kind of really want to take a different route and make a really um clear case of why i believe that this DeFi craze or DeFi revolution or DeFi evolution, however you want to perceive it, is significant. It's important. And I want to cover some of the serious projects, not as investment opportunities necessarily. Like I'm not going to talk about these projects as investments and whether or not you should buy them. What yeah, I really, We still don't talk about price. No. <laughs> that hasn't changed. But what I really want to do here is kind of lay out a map, lay out like the field and just kind of 
walk you through a couple of the things that are going on and what they're replacing and how they're interacting with each other. So you have like a bird's eye view of the space and you can start to get a grasp of what's coming. Because in the same way, like Adam, I really agree with you. It does remind me of the ICO craze where there was all kinds of garbage. But hey, at the end of the day, the ICO craze also brought us some of today's biggest projects that are probably in in route to changing the world in a lot of ways, right? So there were some gold nuggets in that ICO craze. And I think that there's real gold nuggets in this DeFi situation. I think we're looking at like a new technology. What, what people dreamt about that the kinds of things Ethereum could do, I think we're starting to see the very, very beginnings of it. And I want to take this episode to lay, lay that out and talk about all of these different projects, not in depth, just kind of shortly and talk about how that compares to our current financial situations and systems. Yeah, you agree with me. I agree with you. We're just going back and forth. But I do want to just kind of, it feels like it's almost, uh, it becomes this gold rush kind of thing. Like we keep mentioning gold, maybe we should, uh, you know, it's a third reference. But it's like every time with the ICO craze, all of a sudden there were a few good projects. Like I think, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I swear Ethereum even, or they had some sort of funding. Maybe it wasn't considered an ICO then, but there was definitely like, and then Augur was one of them, I think, like very early. That was one of the earliest projects. And then there were a few others that happened that were early. And as things just kind of became exponential and people realized that ICOs were such a good route to get funding and we were all making so much money, like, you know, or just, you would just wake up and there would be just more money you know, or more to all of a sudden you're like, this is worth that. What that you were just throwing kind of like tokens against the wall and hoping they stick almost. And it's the same thing with um, DeFi in a similar way, probably a far less lucrative way from like somewhat, because like some of the ICOs, like if you hit, if you did well on ICO, they really, you would get a bonus and then they would like, they could, 100x some of them. I mean, I granted, like I was, yeah, I don't think any of us were fortunate with that. But with DeFi, it's just like it's quick and it's like within, you have to be fast with it. And if you're slow, you know, that, that's how you kind of get scammed or you just get a bad project and they just leave. Well, if you're slow when you're coming in and out uh, with the intention to trade profitably, but if we adjust our time horizons and we just look at it from a perspective of having an opportunity to invest in good projects early on in their careers and sticking with them for a long time, you know, let's say a time horizon of more than two or three years, then we might be super, 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 super early, right? Like you're talking about getting in at the first fraction of the second, so you can get out at the fourth fraction of the second. But if you get in on the third, fourth week of a project that's going to be massive in 10 years, five years... We're still early in a lot of ways, right? But the space moves quickly. But one of the things that I also want to point out today is unlike the ICO boom, in a way in which DeFi is different, is that back then, almost every project was a projection of something that would be, a product that could be. Everything that we're going to talk about today are existing products. We're going to talk about existing services whether it's lending, borrowing, trading, whether we're talking about insurance, we're all going to talk about working products. And that is a huge difference from the last craze. And I think that that's really interesting. Right. It looks like the speculation comes on weird things like the governance token. And because the wild fluctuations in the price happen, 
with those things, people kind of forget that like Maker has this entirely functioning collateral system that just works. Exactly. They forget that SushiSwap is a functioning decentralized exchange. Like maybe the sushi token doesn't do shit. Maybe it was never intended to do shit. Maybe nobody should have valued it ever, but there's something interesting going on at the core. I agree with you 100%, Brent. So let's stop teasing it. Let's start actually getting into it. And uh, the last mention I'll do here for the audience, we're going to cover a lot of material today because we're looking at a big picture. It might not be as much detail. So this is the type of episode that maybe you'll go back to listen to or pause or listen on multiple uh, listens, kind of spread it out. There's a lot of terms. We're going to cover everything, but it's just, again, big picture right? So don't let that intimidate you. If you didn't get something, just go back. It shouldn't be that, uh, it shouldn't be that, that dense, but we'll cover a lot of stuff. So the first thing that I want to start with guys is laying out how our current system works so that we actually have a point of comparison, right? So if we're going to talk DeFi, which stands for decentralized finance, what does centralized finance or CFI look like? And the way to kind of structure this from the very ground level is to recognize that we have two institutions that basically govern or we rely on to run the system. The first one is banks, right? Banks are the ones that do collateral services. They're the ones that are doing transfers of money. They're the ones that are doing lending. Now, of course, there's things like PayPal and Venmo, which have become more hybrid in the modern age, but essentially banks handle the bulk of financial services, right? And the other key institution is governments, right? Because governments are controlling the supply of money, which essentially at the end of the day by extension is valuation, like money, the the cost of money, the cost of debt. The governments are influencing that. And they're also providing layers of support. So for example, governments provide FDIC insurance. Because it used to be the case that when people freaked out that the bank wasn't going to have the money, everybody did a bank run and then it was terrible. And then the government said, hey, 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 don't worry. If your money's in the bank, we'll cover it, right? Yeah, so, I mean, if people did bank runs, they'd find out that the banks don't really have much money. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the government provides that layer of support. Now, one of the things that we talk about here at Crypto Basic is that thinking about the world constructively isn't always about thinking of everything as like, this is better than this and everything's better. Actually, most things in life end up being trade-offs, right? So what are the trade-offs? What's the trade-off profile with, with centralized finance? Well, we as customers, as consumers, essentially get to outsource risk and trust to the bank and the government. Risk and trust, right? And by outsourcing those two, we facilitate economic activity. Why? Well, let's say, for example, that you walk into a store, right? And you have a credit card. You want to make a credit card purchase. Well, the vendor doesn't have to analyze your credit and see how good you are for it, right? That's the bank's job. The vendor can just say, hey, as long as you have your credit card, swipe it right here. I don't have to worry about it. The bank is serving as an intermediary. If you can't pay, the bank will answer to that vendor. So he can make that sale, right? By another way to think about this is, for example, that depositors, when you go put money in the bank, 
Now, this is funny to even say now because this is more like in theory, right? But like when you put <laughs> money in the bank and they pay you back interest, right? <laughs> LOL, however yeah. much your savings gets, right? Is it negative yet? But anyway, in theory, when you put money into the bank and they pay you a return, the bank makes money off of that by lending it out and assessing how creditworthy people are and doing car loans and mortgages and stuff. So they're using your money and lending it out to create a return. And then they share some of that return with you. So that means that you don't have to do all that work because, again, you are outsourcing all of that work to the bank, right? And the other good thing here is that we're also protected because they take all the liability, right? Part of outsourcing risk means that you're not responsible for scams, that you're not responsible for getting cheated as much, right? That you can Mm -hmm. call your credit card and they'll protect you and they'll cancel charges. And if, you know, somebody still... Like, basically... There is value in kind of exporting that risk. FDIC insured, right? Up to, what is it, 250K yeah. or what's the, whatever the number yeah, is. Like I think is, I want to say it's 250K. Yeah. That's um, the risk that we're, and the trust, the, those two things right there, that's great. If Absolutely. you make a mistake and you send money where you accidentally put your transaction fee at $100, you can call the bank and say, hey, I didn't mean to send money at $100. I meant to send it at uh, $1, but I put too many zeros in there. Help me out. They can help you out. Can Even you if you that? send it to the wrong to the wrong person, Brent, right? Like let's say I yeah. send $500 to the wrong person. I call the bank and I'm like, hey, I didn't mean to do that. They'll handle it. Yeah. If you mm-hmm. do that in Bitcoin, you're screwed, <laughs> right? Um, We've so, all done that. Well, have, actually, Kareem may not have. The other not day yet. I sent 2500 to a contract like one of the like smart contract, like the, the coin smart contract, I guess, instead of sending it to an actual wallet. And I was like, oh my God, how am I going to get it back? And then literally it, when I went to support, it was like the first thing is if you send it to your, accidentally send it to the smart contract, please just wait. It'll come back. Like basically that's what it says. So in like 12 hours, it, it <laughs> like came back and returned, but it was very two twenty five hundred dollars worth of coins just like out in the ether because I was just happened happened to like cut and paste something wrong and it's just the dangerous ether. There. Yeah, I know. We uh well I used it that is. before and you're, and you're on your own. Yeah. No, 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 but you're absolutely right, man. It's 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 like harder, screwed. you know. The risk is on you. I was very fortunate that that I went to like uh you know that it just happened and it wasn't like a yeah, it wasn't uh, just some random third weird site that I'm on that I'm just like, okay, because I know that people have really done that and, and for a lot larger than just that. And just it's, it's, brutal. no, absolutely. absolutely. That's why I've shifted my thought on crypto future a little bit. I think that the majority of crypto in the future will still be handled by big institutions in some way. I think people just don't have it in them to give up that ease and that trust push and that ability to call support and complain like i i think that something like square is way more likely to be the number one thing people use for crypto you can opt out if you'd like you can control all your money if you'd like but if you want the ease of use and you want to be on cash app i see that as a big part of the future yeah PayPal yeah I, th- too. I agree with you brent to, to the extent that it's going to be significant because there will always be people that are willing to pay a premium to not deal with the stress and the risk and whatever, you know? And by the way, all of these benefits that we're getting from, or let's say 
yeah, let's call them benefits that we're getting from the financial system, this outsourcing of risk and trust. The way that we pay for it, and this part is important, is we pay with fees, we pay with friction. What I mean by friction is, for example, I want to send Brent money and he's in another country and I do a wire, I want to go to my bank, my bank... um, it might take three, four days because they have to talk to the other bank, right? There's a couple of banks that are going to be communicating, et cetera. And in fact, Colombia is particularly bad about that. If I want to get legitimate money here, it is very difficult because they're so scared about money laundering. So just a random anecdote. Makes sense. And well, there you go, Brian. You just hit on my third point. We also pay with regulation, right? There's a lot of regulation that basically oversees this entire process. Because you get to use the bank and because the government is supporting the bank, there's also a bunch of regulation that says, for example, oh, know your customers. Or if you're going to do these types of transactions, we need to know about it. If you're going to buy these types of assets, if you have a transaction over this amount, the government needs to know about it, right? Could I pose it? Could I just pose a a question right now? Um, Of course. Brent, you have some issues. You have issues with getting like USD if you need it, is what you're saying, right? No, uh, getting legitimate money into Colombia is what I was saying there. There is a path to citizenship in Colombia that basically requires you to start a business with $25,000. In order for me to do that, to get the money into the ecosystem here in Colombia and be part of their regulatory body, it would actually cost me about $30,000 US dollars. Uh, I would have to pay a hefty premium and a lot of time to get money here. Oh, okay. So that's. Well, so let let me, and this is just me playing devil's advocate because like uh, we still got the Libra coin. I know this may be derailing it or a little bit, but I was just curious that because you guys are not really happy with Facebook, whatever. If let's say Libra was like, you could just go on WhatsApp and you could get that 30,000 USD right there. Like that seems very like, that seems like it's a very good use case, right? Well, I can still do, do that with Bitcoin or anything, yeah. but it wouldn't yeah. be. There's other solutions the, that don't require giving more power to, to the Colombian <laughs> government, right? And to one of the worst companies on the planet, right? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. more. Just the me, like, not a solution. I, I just wanted to like kind of bring it up from old like you know talks many moons ago, but yeah. <laughs> so you guys uh, own me there, but let's get back to what you're saying, Kareem. <laughs> well. All right. So the last thing to say about centralized finance, and I'm only saying this because I think it's important, right? Again, we see a lot of emotional thinking in cryptocurrency. So I just want to say that to think about it more objectively, we should look at centralized finance as a technology. It does provide a lot of services. It has a lot of costs. It has trade-offs. A society with our banks, with banks and governments, it's not an ideal society ideal economic system, but it's also a better and more functioning system than we had hundreds of years or before that, right? So it's just important to recognize that this is another building block and it's created, facilitated a lot of trade and economic activity. And now DeFi is a new evolution in that trajectory, right? With different trade-off profiles. So let's talk about DeFi specifically. What is it? Well, DeFi is really kind of a catch-all term because it's defining or describing a variety of protocols, but they're all different layers of decentralized. So just because something is part of what is normally called DeFi doesn't necessarily mean that the project itself is fully decentralized. Each one of these have different levels of centralization. There's different 
services being performed. So just think of DeFi as like a subsector of cryptocurrency, more so than like a literal definition, right? Okay. Yeah, I think it's morphed to that, especially. I think it might have started off as like a completely decentralized situation. But now that the craze hit and it was labeled certain things, I think now when you think DeFi, you think everything from Maker to all the goddamn foods that have been coming out. (laughs) Right. So ultimately, the purpose of DeFi is to mimic the products and services that centralized finance provides, but do it without the centralized party, right? Without the governments, without the banks, or without the PayPal. So I know I'm kind of stating the obvious here, but just kind of laying the groundwork, right? The idea here is to create systems in which the users themselves can provide the financial counterparts. We're cutting out the middlemen in a lot of ways, right? And there's already some layers of this. Like, for example, there is such a thing as peer-to-peer lending, right? You could go on like... I don't know if Lending Tree is one of them, but there's a couple of them where like you can go and put Lending some capital. Club is. There you go, Lending Club. Thank you, Brent. So the internet has already begun to facilitate peer-to-peer uh, systems, but they're not super scalable and they have other difficulties. So remember, some of the benefits of DeFi is not just decentralization. There's other things that we get when we use blockchains. So we'll go a little bit into uh, more into that. SoFi right? is another big um, one. Right? What are the unique dynamics? Sorry, it's just SoFi. Is like SoFi? Of, yeah, I think that it's a person. It says it's a personal finance company. It does it's a student provides student loan refinance? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Personal loans and stuff. I don't know. It's a big one. Yeah, yeah, honestly, I used to get SoFi daily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's yeah, that's a big for sure. Uh, one of those big and ones. that's a new one so they're still making you know like these they're not like pivoting to uh, nothing not everything's pivoting to you know doing this just like for crypto and stuff this is like like just like a normal company. no of course the financial sector will keep evolving yeah. right like all of these players will keep evolving their business models and DeFi is just something that's bubbling in our sector and has lots of potential but Absolutely. Do you mean bubbling as in like, like, like bubbling, like not like a pop or is it like bubbling as in kind of like a carbonation? Cause I feel like it's more that not necessarily just full bubble. It's bubbling like a volcano getting ready to erupt on the world. There you go. Uh, there you go. Careful with the use of the word bubble. <laughs> like, come on. That's a, I know. It's, it's very soon. offensive. Very offensive in this space to use the term bubbling. <laughs> Look, One thing I'm going to mention right now, which is worth noting since we're talking about this, while DeFi will not always be limited to Ethereum, at the current moment, it's basically on Ethereum, okay? So today's episode is about this entire space that exists on Ethereum, and it can 100% migrate to other chains, and there will be other projects that will be doing similar things, and the ecosystems can evolve and change however you want. But it's important to recognize, at least today, as of right now, DeFi is an ecosystem that exists on Ethereum. Okay? And also, so, you know, every time I think about Ethereum cream, I start to think, this is, this might be a big deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've thought the same thing. And we're not even talking about ETH oh, yeah. 2.0 in this podcast, right? Nah. We're not talking about E2.0. We're talking about the the bird's eye view of what is going on in DeFi. All right. So what are some of the unique dynamics that we get, right? Besides the fact that things are just decentralized. Well, one of the beautiful things about a blockchain like Ethereum is that it is permissionless. That means that 
adapts, can integrate, copy, innovate with each other, and they don't have to ask for permission. If your source is open code, I can link my smart contract to your smart contract. And it's important to think about this in a way, guys, like think about Apple, because the Apple store changed the game. It created a bunch of innovation. But Apple is a company that has specific market interests, right? It exists in a particular jurisdiction. So it has to deal with governments, municipal, local, whatever. And it has basically a lot of restrictions. So Apple, because it has to look out for its own interest as an irrational, objective actor, Apple will limit the kinds of things that can appear on the Apple store. Yep. Ethereum will not. The creativity well is literally on, like anybody can create anything because this is a permissionless protocol. This is one of the very powerful things about a public blockchain. So there is no censorship or filtering of projects. That could be good, but that could be fantastic. Okay. Uh, Second, hold on. That could be good or that could be fantastic. I feel like I guess yeah yeah yeah. I was just nodding like, all right, that could be good or that could be bad. I'm like, (laughs) no no no, you're right, you're right. What I meant to say is there's obviously some bad consequences. People will create. You meant to say was you really love DeFi? You're just you're buying. Yes. Thank you. It can either be good or amazing. That's the range. Nothing under that. (laughs) I I definitely have some nuanced thought on permission spaces. Because if you look at Reddit versus 4chan, you see what a space that inherently does have permission and does have moderation becomes versus one that doesn't. So Reddit is what it is, but 4chan is a cesspool. So you may think that Reddit ends up leaning too far left or censoring the certain groups of people, but going on 4chan is just awful. It is not a good experience unless you are like an incel or something. I don't know. So that is the problem sometimes with permissionless, which Reddit used to be. So I guess. Yeah, I agree with you, Brent. And look, at the end of the day, it creates some potential for, you know, some bad things out there, but the interesting thing, I think that a blockchain system is a little bit more protected from the kind of uh, 4chan situation you're describing because it's so built on financial interests that like, yeah, I mean, you could build anything, right? But like, it's going to, it's only going to attract activity and interact with things if it can create something that people are, from a capitalistic free market perspective, the profit motive, the incentive motive is there kind of inherent in everything for something to grow, right? But if somebody wants to create a 4chan-like cesspool, <laughs> as you call it, I actually never been on 4chan, so I don't really know. But based on what you're saying, the fact that somebody can create it on Ethereum, and that's the quote-unquote cost in exchange for there being no filter to people's creativity, no middleman deciding what goes on and what doesn't, based on their own personal interests, I think that's pretty good, right? Another unique dynamic about DeFi here is autonomy, right? Kind of like we started talking at the beginning of the episode. Here, the money and the assets are actually yours. They're in your hands, right? This is like kind of controversial sometimes to talk about when you say, oh, the bank, the money in the bank is not actually yours or this is not yours. But it's funny, man. A lot of you don't understand the relationship you have legally with certain assets until it gets tested, right? Like the fine print in the contract says we can deny this at any time, or this is all these kinds of things, right? Here, hashtag rents banned from PayPal. 
<laughs> here things are in your hands, in your hands. You are in charge of the transactions. You are on top of everything. That gives you more risk, but it also gives you more power. I'll give you guys an anecdote of something that happened to my parents precisely I think, you know, because they're Colombian, Brent, as you mentioned, and there's fear of money laundering. But my parents are like so straight arrow. It's kind of absurd. Like it's it's like they're boringly straight arrow, right? They had a bank account frozen and confiscated because there was like a possible suspicion of like, we don't know where this money came from. And it took my parents like three years. Oh, my God. In court. To prove that that money came from legitimate sources where they were like giving stuff and everything. And when it was all said and done, guess what? The the costs were out of pocket. And then the government gave the nod for the bank to unfreeze the assets. And my parents finally had access to the money. So literally 30K they had to spend on fucking lawyers or whatever. Yeah, it was less than that. But point taken again, like, yeah, they probably lost 30 to 35% of of what they had in there simply because of an incorrect flag because you know somebody somewhere said yeah these guys probably you know and didn't have proof <laughs> so yeah. i know it doesn't happen often so when it doesn't happen to you you don't really feel like these things are an issue but the more personal experience with it that you have the more you realize how kind of ridiculous the system is right so yeah i do believe that had something to do with columbia because since I've been here, I've seen some really weird stuff. So, I mean, I don't know what their situation was, but I bought a phone, a uh, SIM card here, put SIM card in my phone, and it said, in 30 days, this phone's going to be shut off unless you prove that you bought it. And I actually had to upload a receipt of my purchase for my physical device that I have in Colombia to prove that I didn't steal it. That makes sense. That makes yeah, sense. I mean, this stuff is, it, it's weird because I, I, I mean, I get decentralization, but then people take advantage of the system. And then all of a sudden something is happening where now there needs to be checks, like there needs to be stops in the bank account to make sure that there's no money laundering or make sure they're not doing it for nefarious purposes or something. So it's just like, it's like, yeah, in a perfect world, I would love everything to be completely decentralized. So, I mean, granted, I'm more on decentralization than I am on centralization side, but I, at least I see sometimes why, like, you know, the 4chan kind of example that, that Brent is talking about where it can get kind of, you know, like there, there's just certain things that can happen that are like, we have connect, we have Bitcoin hex, we have all these random scams. So, and listen, I agree with you, Adam, that there are cases where it makes sense, but maybe the flip side of that is also how, abusive governments are able to do the exact opposite, right? Yeah. Use these I mean, powers to confiscate for nefarious purposes. You know, I, there's no, I don't really think there's a right, like a, there's a, there's no unequivocal right answer. No, you're right. But the idea is, can we create systems which make it as difficult as possible for cheating and manipulation? Well, I guess that is true. Immutable. The fact that someone does something on, somehow on the blockchain and they can just go, go back and see where this transaction happened, I guess, is what actually makes it, you know, gives it at, at least a shot. We at least should try it. It's better. It's going to be better than at least not than not trying and sticking to the centralized system. And Adam, I'm so glad you mentioned that because the next point I had on here is that DeFi 
has a different layer level of transparency compared to our centralized system, right? Because we're talking about an open blockchain here and all of the transactions that happen are publicly recorded. That means that you can see where the money's locked up. You can see when whales are moving funds. You can find I can reserves. see when Brent spent money on OnlyFans. Shout out to Max Daily. I mean, it's really way different because you could just have systems that go and look at entire histories. You could see if, if, let's say, a developing team has the funds. Well, you could see what their development address is. You'll know if they moved it. You'll know if the founder just dumped a bunch of money. You know, is it time? For what? For the story. I mean, you're talking about seeing a developer move some funds. And I don't know. I feel like that could be a time to shoot you in there. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. All right. So, caution, red flag alert, things that you may or may not do in the crypto space. Well, all right, Brent. Since my next point is that DeFi. I don't even know the finish of like the thought was that you were saying. He just said developer. And he's just like, oh. Like I, I was like I was interested in what I have no idea what you're talking no, about. No, Brent's gonna Brent wants me to tell a story which is gonna be appropriate here because the next All line right. is that it's riskier. <laughs> and you can yes. lose your you can lose your private keys. You can lose your private keys, you can have hacks, you can have smart contract bugs, there's no centralized authority to reverse a mistake or freeze funds. I don't want to waste too much time on the story, but essentially and Brent, you can confirm. I think I'm one of like the least aggressive traders ever. I, I like Kareem is the least. Okay, Kareem is the least aggressive. He's the most skeptical of our group by a million miles. So <laughs> I'm going to tell you a little Brent perspective here. Kareem puts this little thing in our in our private chat. He's like, "All right, oh my god, you better look, not misrepresent my position here." <laughs> I'm not saying. It's a sure thing. In fact, this is super dangerous. But I just saw something, and I'm going to take the craziest shot I've ever taken in the crypto space, basically. And, you know, I don't, this is like two months ago, so I don't remember exactly what you said. Oh, yeah, I remember this now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was basically like a developer that I have a lot of respect for working on something, but they didn't even announce it. It was like, we were talking about transparency. Somebody was able to see their smart contracts being activated and he was working on another project. Basically, I was trying to front end a project announcement by literally interacting with the smart contract before it was announced. So this wasn't even a project that was announced. I sent some funds, nothing huge, of course, but like I took my one gamble where I was like, I think this this is the kind of thing that could Literally 20x from announcement. <laughs> and uh, so what I throw this in here, what I what I'm thinking this whole time is Kareem would never just do this. He like if it was Adam telling me, all right, I'd I'd give it a second thought. I'd be like, all right, he's taking his million shots on his million things. He's usually right, but whatever. Like, I'm gonna look into it a little bit more. Kareem's over here telling me, I'm like, he's already looked into all of it. I'm in. I start trying to move funds around. But I run into like some sort of block or I got mad that the fees were so high that I couldn't get my money out. I was going to throw like $500 at it or whatever. And turns out. Yeah. So turns out it would, that would have been a mistake because the reason the project hadn't been launched is because it was still being worked on and the smart contract wasn't even close to finish. It hadn't been audited and there was an exploit and somebody 
was able to do a basically like a trading. It wasn't really like a hack, but sort of it was like a trading exploit of minting the token and being able to sell it really quickly. So essentially, I lost 70% of what I put in in 24 hours. So Oh, they did give you a 30% refund. Right, right, right. Um, but that's a really long story. Uh, but yes, so this space is risky. And yes. oh, by the way, Brent's, Brent's exact words as to why he was going to buy any because he was like, oh, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm like, really? That's all, that's all you need to know? And he's like, well, either you're right or I get to bitch for life about how you were wrong the one time you told me to invest in something. I'm like, okay, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I just kind of use a very a very simple logic where it's just like if the guy who never is in anything is pulling the trigger in this one thing, then he's probably like really sold on it. So I'm kind of in there. So I'm actually happy that I did like that I didn't see this because I may have like jumped in the water. Lesson as well. of the story is. <laughs> Just because do I don't take a bunch of risks doesn't mean I'm any less idiotic than everybody else. <laughs> I just do it one big time a year. <laughs> All right. So let's get into some specific projects to give you guys some ideas of some of the stuff that's going on. And if you've already done some DeFi research or if you do some DeFi research, one of the things that you're going to run across is this metaphor or analogy that keeps popping up, which is that DeFi projects are like Lego blocks. And people say that because since these are like smart contracts and tokens and everything, but anybody can interact with them, what ends up happening is that a lot of projects interact with each other and mess around with each other, right? Like if you're a project that has a bunch of money, you can use some of that money to lend it on some platform or apply to a liquidity pool, or you can use this feature on that feature. So I just wanted to mention that, like, if you ever hear the Lego block expression, it's because of that, because all of these things are interacting together and creating a little financial ecosystem. Okay. So let's start with lending and borrowing, which is like the most basic financial service. We all need to do it. It's the lifeblood of our economy. In the traditional financial system, there's something called the five C's of credit. It's like the main way that lenders gauge how credit worthy you are or how much interest they should charge you or if they should even let you borrow money. And it's called the five C's of credit because it's character, capacity, capital, collateral, and conditions. Character is your credit history, your credit score. Your capacity is like your debt to income ratio. That's going to be your capacity to pay back the loan. Your capital is how much money you have, how much liquidity you have, right? Collateral is assets that you can use to back the loan, a home, a car, right? And conditions is the loan itself. What's the purpose of the loan? What's the scope? What's the interest? So they look at all of those factors. When you go to a bank and you try to get a loan, they look at all those factors and analyze that to determine if they can lend you money and how much they should let you borrow. Here's the thing with DeFi. Number one, it's permissionless, right? People are interacting with these contracts. That means no KYC. That means you don't often you don't know your customer's name or anything. All you have is an Ethereum address. It's borderless. That's great, but it also means that you're not going to get a credit score, right? You can't see what this person has. So something like character is not really going to apply here, right? Same thing with capacity. I can't look at your debt to income ratio. So what essentially has happened is that the entirety of the EFI, DeFi lending and borrowing system has kind of been built around collateral with Maker being 
that initial mover, right? That created that first system where you're using collateral to mint, essentially get a loan, but also to mint a stable coin. So we're going to go into that, but you can kind of frame in your mind how all of this right now revolves around collateral. Funny mention, I remember now why I didn't finish this investment. (laughs) I have a maker contract where I just locked up a bunch of Ethereum because I wanted to like use it, right? So, and I borrowed like a thousand die or something like that, but all the rest of the Ethereum is locked up. I go to pay back the die loan so I can get it out of there. And it's like a hundred dollars to pay it back or something like that. And I'm like, oh my God, no. And I just get tilted and I don't do it. So that's what it was. So. Way to run good. Sick yeah. brag. Let me teach the people about make. <laughs> All right. So uh, I'm assuming that some of the people listening to this episode right now don't know anything about the space. So some of the stuff I'll say, if it sounds repetitive, just understand that some people just. We do have a one-on-one on Maker. So we, yeah, we did pretty- talk about that at one point. So if you want to listen to that, you can pause here, go back and listen to the Maker 101 episode. I wish I knew the URL slug, but I don't. <laughs> well, uh, we'll link it at the bottom, though. But essentially, one of the things to consider is that we need stable coins in DeFi. And the reason that we need stable coins is because crypto assets are volatile. And if you want to have economic activity, you have to give investors and traders the opportunity to come in and out of stability quickly and at their discretion. So this is the reason why things like Tether were invented, you know, and USDC, which is like from Coinbase and, you know, whatever. Tether is not really decentralized. So it's not something that we want to talk about here. But it's worth mentioning that stable coins were needed, and this was identified very early on. So MakerDAO is kind of like a real OG here, like Brent mentioned. It started in 2014, and very early on, it created a unique way to have a stable coin that also created a sort of lending platform, right? And essentially, it had the idea of creating a stable coin by using a collateralized debt position. That's CDP. And that became very popular in the space. And essentially, you can put in, let's say you can supply collateral to Maker as long as it's at least one and a half times the amount of um, stablecoin that you're going to mint. And then you can mint an amount of stablecoin, right? So you could, for example, supply you know 10 ETH and take out 5 ETH worth of DAI, which would have the value of a dollar. Right. And you can actually do basic attention token too, I think. Oh, you could do it with uh, BAT as well? That's interesting. Yeah. So this became like a minting system that would create a stable coin that could circulate around. And it was a stable coin that wasn't backed by actual US dollars, even though the algorithm made it be worth a US dollar. And then when people paid back those loans with DAI, the DAI that they minted, right? They supplied ETH minted die, and then they owe die to the system, just like Brent did and why he wasn't able to get his Ethereum unlocked. Now, when people pay that die back, they pay something called a stability fee. And you could consider it like a loan origination fee, even though it's a stability fee for other reasons that involve makers' ability to keep die at $1, but it's essentially you pay a fee to take out some die, right? And that fee goes to the holders of the maker token. And this is our first example of a protocol that has a distinction between 
its product and its governance token because Maker in a, is a governance token. The people who hold Maker both get to shape the direction of the project, get to vote on changes to the protocol, but they're also collecting value based on the fees that the protocol is collecting in DAI, right? Now, this created a lot of utility because by having, number one, you get a non-collateralized stable coin, that's DAI. You can also use this for refinancing. This is like, you can start thinking about some of the ways that you can use Maker, right? Let's say you, for example, have a loan somewhere. You could literally take an asset just to take out the DAI amount so that you could pay off that loan and then go take out your new loan without having to like have the new loan pay the old loan, right? You can use DAI in between. You can also use it to have liquidity while you want to be long on ETH, which is what Brent did, right? Brent had a bunch of Ethereum, but he wanted to have money. He knows he's not going to sell that Ethereum. So he locked it up in a contract and got essentially dollars. Essentially (laughs) work as dollars, basically. DAI, right? And he was able to use around and play around with. You can also use this system to leverage up your position. So I'm going to give an example of that. You could take $1,500 worth of Ethereum, lock it up. And remember, you have to have a 1.5 to 1 ratio. So you you take $1,500 worth of Ethereum and you lock it up on Maker and mint a thousand die, a thousand dollars worth of die. Then you take that thousand dollars worth of die, you go and you buy a thousand dollars worth of Ethereum. Now you can use that Ethereum, lock it up on Maker, and you can get another 500 die. Right. So now you buy, you converted your $1,500 worth of Ethereum into a $2,500 Ethereum exposure. Now, how can you do that? The only way to do that, I'm going to rephrase that. The only way to do that in a way that works is by increasing risk. Right. So there is additional risk here because Maker is a smart contract system that will liquidate you if your collateral falls under a certain ratio. Right. That's part of the beauty of Maker, that they never have to worry about not getting their money back because if the price of Ethereum starts to fall, right, if you owe $500 worth of DAI and your Ethereum collateral goes 800, 700, 600, Maker's not going to wait until it's 500. It's just going to sell some of your Ethereum to cover that loan and it's going to charge you for forcing it to have to make that sale, right? But that's all going to happen automatically. There was was one time where it sold a ton of of Ethereum because its number one goal is to keep die at one dollar. Doesn't give a shit about your Ethereum. Was it like twenty nine million dollars or yeah. something? I don't know. It was some absurd amount that like Maker was just like, oops, <laughs> like this is just a part of the game. Their contract worked correctly. They just hadn't thought about the thing that triggered it, and I don't remember what this was, but it was actually an accidental stress test to that to that contract because die did not change value. It stayed at one dollar. The whole time, even though they had an existential crisis. So it worked. And that's another thing. I mean, if you're just kind of new to the space, there's this is not the first time that weird kind of occurrences like that have happened. It's just like, I guess there are anomalies, but it, things can kind of just happen like that. There was a flash crash like four years ago with Ethereum where all of a sudden, I forget what exchange, I think it was an exchange and just like, Someone at like either there was a typo or something. All of a sudden, I think Ethereum dipped yeah, to like yeah, a buck. It was absurd. And it was at like a 
150 or 200 dollars and then someone made like a lot of money because they shorted it randomly or bought one had a buy order as a troll at like a dollar and was able to buy a bunch but um a lot of people lost a lot of money and they had to replace the money the exchanges were like this is such a freak thing so they like kind of like helped them out but you're not always going to get that fallback plan so you do have to be very careful about some of these things especially when you're levering up and you're just going from 1500 to 1k to 500 250 to 125 i remember like, I mean, like, you could go all the way down if you wanted half maker had just dis- had discussed pulling money from the treasury to make people whole for that but i don't remember if they did but one of the benefits of centralization that would never happen and then flash crash otherwise. Right. And and especially with a lot of these yeah. systems that are being programmed to take specific actions, they're smart contracts, right? You're going to get some externalities because a smart contract is not a human being that's thinking about this or that. It's just performing some type of order. And sometimes the smart contract just doing what it thinks it's supposed to do in some freak situation is going to be absurd, right? And create Which is an- why they need to be audited and there needs to be research and there needs Absolutely. to be audited. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so Maker was the big daddy. Let's move on to what's happening right now because there's two, I'm going to talk about two major players here that have kind of extended this lending and borrowing game and added a bunch of new features and taken it to another level, right? So we're going to talk about Compound and we're going to talk about Aave, all right? First, we're going to talk about Compound and Compound is getting much closer to a bank than, for example, Maker, right? It's non-custodial though. We're still talking about something that's decentralized. So these are just smart contracts. But the interesting thing about Compound is that it's using decentralized algorithms to calculate the interest rate supply and demand basically for different cryptos that want like the interest rate for lending it out or the interest rate, uh, rate for borrowing it for different crypto assets, right? And it's still using a collateralized debt position, just like we talked before. Crypto right now has to rely on just collateral because we don't really know that much about you. But that will change with time, I think. The other cool thing about it is that it has multiple assets. This is not just a project trying to create a stablecoin like Maker, like with DAI, right? Here, you can borrow or lend Ethereum or Chainlink or Bitcoin or all kinds of things, right? And the way that these contracts work, by the way, just to give you a little bit of a under the hood, if you ever start interacting with DeFi, and this applies to Aave, I mean, Compound, Aave, Yearn, whenever you interact with one of these smart contracts, you're going to get what's called like an issuance or a redemption token. So like if you lend, let's say, Ethereum on Compound, they're going to give you a token called CETH, right? C for Compound Ethereum. And that's what it's going to look like in your wallet. And that basically entitles you to a share or a percentage. And the system is automatically keeping track. But that's how the ledger is kept, basically. You still have that token. And technically, you could take that token. Like if Brent lent Aave, he would, uh, you know, lent Ethereum, he would have that CE token. He could send that CE token to me. And then I could go redeem that loan, right? So this is still kind of operating through tokens. But... The interesting thing is you now have more ability to get creative financially. For example, you can use Compound to short or long assets. You can long assets the same way that we talked about with uh, Maker, right? You could just leverage up your debt, like borrow money to buy more of the crypto and just leverage it up. But you can actually short an asset 
if you're creative about it. So let's say, for example, Brent wants to short Tron coin. Seems like a coin he would want to short. Yep, right? it does. Not Tron, everybody. Tron coin. It's a different thing. There's a di- Come on. No, nah, I'm just kidding. So okay. Brent puts... Adam, 10- are you okay with this? That I'm shorting this? <laughs> no, no, he already recanted. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm okay. It's you know I've already moved on from my uh, Tron Moon Boy status. I've I've denounced it publicly on this podcast. <laughs> so, Brent, if you wanted to short Tron Coin, you could, for example, take ten Ethereum, right, and put it in lock it in because you know you're not going to sell that Ethereum. Now, use take that ten Ethereum and borrow five Ethereum worth of Tron Coin. Let's say that that equaled a thousand Tron Coins. So you've used your Ethereum collateral to borrow Tron. What does that mean? That you owe Tron to the system, right? Yep. Now you immediately sell that Tron for Ethereum. Then you wait for the price of Tron to fall because you expect it to fall and then buy back the Tron and pay back your loan. And you've effectively shorted Tron, right? (laughs) And (laughs) you can also use Compound to... I mean, mainly, mainly it's the borrowing and trading. And Compound was that first project that really rocked the boat with governance tokens. Essentially, they had their lending pools and all that stuff. And they started giving Compound tokens for participation in either lending or borrowing. And they had an algorithm basically determine where you would get more tokens to incentivize more activity in certain pools. And that really created like crazy dynamics where people were getting essentially paid to borrow because they were borrowing, let's say, Ethereum, and they had to pay back at 4%. But the rate of compound that they were getting that they could sell that compound for meant that they were getting paid to borrow. So this is one of the first projects that messed things up with governance tokens, not because the governance tokens is bad, but just because it created weird incentives. You know what I mean? Especially because of what the market was paying for that compound. Ave is the other major one and not trying to pick favorites or anything. It looks like the most advanced lending and borrowing protocol right now. I randomly, well, do you remember Lend, Brent? No. Well, it, it used to be Lend on the, like in early 2018, I decided to buy some and I was just like, why did I buy this? And it just full, like, if you look at like what it's done in the past year, it's been ridiculous. And they, they recently just like migrated over to Ave. So basically, it was seventy cents or something. Right now, it, it's basically like once you convert it from Lend to Ave, it's actually worth like seventy. No, yeah, they've been so, super successful. Yeah. And you're right, uh, Adam. They did a total rebrand. I think they're up like four thousand <laughs> percent or something ridiculous. Like since the like the well, past they had a, they they've something. been a big big player in DeFi, and they deserve a lot of credit. Actually, it's a pretty it's a very solid project. They brought new things. So, give you an example of some of the things that they do. Number one, when you lend or borrow on Aave, you can actually select whether you want variable or stable rates. So you can say, I want to lend at a variable rate, and then you are subject to whatever the market forces are. It's obviously a a more high variance approach. Or if you want to lend at a steady rate and know what you're going to get back, the algorithm can calculate what that steady rate will be, right? So right off the bat, the user has more control. There's more profiles that can be fit. Whether you're a low risk or a high risk person, you have more opportunity to get what you want here, right? Another new thing that is a little controversial that Ave brought to the table is something called flash loans. And I want to take a 
pause here because I feel like this is worth mentioning. A lot of the things we're covering are basically DeFi copying something that centralized finance does and being able to do it decentralized. Flash loans are an example of something that didn't exist before. Flash loans are unique to decentralized finance and they only exist on the blockchain. What is a flash loan? It's a loan that you can get with zero collateral. What? And the way you can get a loan with zero collateral is if you are able to pay back the loan within the same transaction. So essentially, now this is obviously for very advanced users that really understand what's going on with the smart contracts. But essentially, you're able to originate a loan. And if in that same block, because remember, it's Ethereum, it's a block, it's been minted. And if in that same block, that transaction, because as if you go, for example, use an exchange, you'll see that oftentimes when you're trading for a token, you'll be actually moving around a couple of things. It's like, oh, you're moving from Ethereum to this and this to this, right? And it'll do Mm -hmm. it all in like one transaction. Well, if in that one transaction, you can borrow, let's say, $1,000, then go to an exchange, buy and sell a token or whatever, some arbitrage that you want to do, and then pay back that loan plus interest, then Aave is able to execute it. And the reason this is controversial is because this has been used for a lot of the exploits that have been found on smart contracts where people find some kind of bug in the system or some kind of price imbalance or an Oracle mistake. We'll get a little bit more into Oracles, but maybe there's like an error with the price feed and you can come in with a flash loan in a single transaction and take out a bunch of money. Uh, This can be used for arbitrage. This could be used for loan refinancing. This could be used to swap the collateral deposit that you have on a particular uh, platform, but it didn't exist before, guys. It never existed. The concept of a flash loan wasn't necessary, but now with crypto, there's this new thing. With no money, no credit, no collateral, no history, as long as you can pay back in that transaction block, you can get thousands of dollars loan. Sorry, I guess I zoned out for a minute. Transaction block. When you say, what is the length of a it's transaction one, block? It's one transaction. I shouldn't say a transaction block because you know I'm, I'm probably not using the correct terminology. I'm thinking of the blocks like on the blockchain, but essentially it's just a transaction. And Adam, since you've like used Uniswap and you've been in some of these liquidity pools, or I don't know if you, for example, have used Zapper or One Inch Exchange, which are some of these like, they'll kind of... One inch is a list on uni. So I, I've heard of right. it. So one, what it. one inch exchange really is, is kind of a an interface that'll find kind of the best price. So like, let's say you want, because there's multiple decentralized exchanges, right? So you could go on one inch and say, hey, I want to buy some link. And in theory, one inch will look at the different uh, places and do, they can also do a conversion for you. Like maybe the trading pair is only, you know, Ethereum and Link, and you want to use this, so it'll like convert it, but it's able to do that in just kind of like one transaction because it does the whole mapping and it submits that transaction to the chain. And if you go look at your yeah. at your history and you look at the transactions on Etherscan, they'll actually sometimes have like three or four. Steps. Is that considered a flash loan? No, no, no. I'm just saying that when you look at those three or four steps, the way to think about a flash loan is a transaction that the first step is getting that loan. Then there's a second, third, fourth step that might involve 
sending money to this smart contract and taking out some funds or interacting with a decentralized exchange and trading a token. And then the end of that transaction is sending that right back to the flash loan originator with the interest. And as long as you're able to submit that transaction and execute it and pay for it, once it's minted, then it happens. The money will flow from Aave to the exchange or to the whatever thing that you're trying to do. It, it, feel, it feels like I'm, I'm missing something a little bit here. So basically, let's say, let's just give an example. Let's say that I want to buy Ethereum and I get a flash loan from whatever website. And then I'm just like, all right, so I do I have like 15 minutes to then buy the Ethereum and then... Okay. Uh, Let me give you a specific like, example. Let's, okay. let's say that you are looking at some small project called Brentcoin, right? And, well, we oh, that'd be a large project. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Or even with Ethereum. Let's say that you, there are two different decentralized exchanges and you notice that there's a discrepancy, that this exchange has Ethereum going for $400 and for whatever reason, this other exchange only has Ethereum going at $370. And it's maybe like an ETH die conversion, right? And you see that there's basically an opportunity for arbitrage. So as one single transaction, you submit, originate a $1,000 loan from Aave, buy Ethereum at 370 from this smart contract, give it to this smart contract, which is just a liquidity pool. So it'll always accept your trade. So now sell it immediately to that liquidity pool, make that profit. Now you're back to the origin, the cash amount, pay back the loan with interest. And that was all one transaction. And now you get to keep the profit. So it wouldn't work if you were just trying to buy Ethereum, but as long as you're just trying to move it around arbitrage or something like that, most of the fun, you see what I'm saying? You're only getting yeah. the profit. So, in the same transaction. All it within the same you, transaction. It lets you. So it's almost like you're just setting up like a multi-fast, like multi-step transaction, Correct. like ahead of time. And you just, you just have to like kind of do it from Aave or wherever well, you're doing. It, that, that's why it was clear that this is like, advanced users i yeah, don't yeah, know yeah. how to do a flash loan yet like i've never even heard of a flash loan and i so you know i'm not trying to use it but it was just so, really and you will you will because there's going to be a lot of the exploits and a lot of the arbitrage like a lot of the sick exploits that you can do because a lot of people don't have they have the knowledge but they don't have a ton of capital lying around but with a flash loan they're able to just take it out boom 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 and they make a bunch of money you know so when let's say every there's a lot of transactions going on in the GUI or the gas goes up for Ethereum and transactions start taking a long time, is that beneficial to you in some way because you'll have more time to do that? Uh, or it's maybe, but my guess is that it's that's really just about bidding the price of the transaction. And if you're doing a flash loan because you know you're going to be able to arbitrage. A bunch of money, then you're probably going to. Be oh, you want to do that fast? Very yeah. willing to pay, right? Exactly. You're you're going to be one of the ones bidding up the transaction cost. All right. Well, uh, thank you for um, Flash Loans One Hundred and One, brought to you by uh, Kareem Bur- <laughs> No, man. Listen, this is this is all new stuff. I, I think it's fascinating. I've been learning about it. Like this is just an example. It's just something that never existed, right? No, I was I was being sarcastic at all. I was no, just no, no. Like, I didn't think you, know, you were this is very helpful for me. Yeah, no, yeah. I didn't think you were at all, Adam. I'm saying that this is I I agree with you that this is kind of like yeah. interesting new stuff. Like I kind of get it now because I've read up on it, but like I don't fully understand it, like how you can even set up the transaction to be multifaceted. I don't know how to do that, but clearly it can be done because one inch exchange or Zapper will do it for you to 
do some conveniences, not the flash loans. I mean, like a multi-step transaction. So it can be done. And the people that know how to master that have an edge. I think the guy who started Augur, his name is Joey Krug. And I just remember when Augur's mainnet maybe released, we'll say a year and a half, two years ago, he basically was like, guys, this is the start of the internet. Just think 1995. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it is the truth because the fact that you're mentioning these flash loans and I, I'm, always, I'm, I guess I'm like maybe a futurist to some extent because I always seem to just look through the future whenever I'm hearing stuff in the present. And like, that is just uh, crazy to me and awesome. And I can't imagine what we're going to be seeing one year, two years, five years from now. I agree with you. And there's going to be a, a couple more cool little nuggets like that, I think. Maybe not as unique as flash loans, but, you know, more projects doing more cool stuff. Yeah. So wrapping up with Alvid, because I have so many projects to cover, man, I guess I, I want to. But they're also doing something else. The collateralized debt positions, they're actually taking them a step further. And they're going to, they can now allow someone with very high collateral to delegate their credit line to a third party. So you have a lot of collateral in the system. They will allow you to delegate to a third party. And by delegating, you can get a cut of the interest rate. So it can juice your own ROI. And if you think about it, this is kind of like a perfect opportunity for even businesses to be built on this. Because a business with a lot of collateral could put a bunch of money on Aave and have that as collateral. And then you could come to me in the real world or online or whatever, and I could do some type of general creditness, worthiness analysis, and then just delegate to you on Aave and get a percentage of your interest rate. Or you can go to your rich uncle and maybe he can give you a loan on Aave wow. without having to give you the assets, literally just by delegating some of the collateral. And the platform is still self-sustaining and blah, blah, blah. So really, really cool stuff. And they even offer something called open law options so that there's some type of contract and ability. So that's just to say that, like I mentioned before that you can only do it with collateral, but as you can see here now with flash loans and now with being able to delegate your collateral, we're starting to take little baby steps towards expanding that, right? To make it a, a not just that you have to have a ton of Ethereum and able to, to be able to borrow some money, right? That doesn't help. Uh, the majority of the world. Not everybody has a ton of Ethereum. Um, no. All right. And uh, last point about the Lend token. Uh, as Adam mentioned, they did a total rebrand. They're now Aave. Uh, Lend is like Compound. Uh, it's the governance token. And that's where the lending fees that are created on the platform go to Aave. So part of the reason why there's that prize explosion is because there's been a huge uptick in lending and borrowing and activity, right? And then Lend also uses, for example, they burn tokens in order to try to keep the price going up. Um, so like when users pay fees in Aave or like certain percentages burnt and this another percentage is distributed to the holders. Um, so anyway, that's one way to think about it. Now, as far as growth potential and comp- uh, not growth potential, really just comparing the size to keep it all in context, but Maker, MakerDAO, the big daddy, has about $2 billion in assets locked in. All right? $2 billion in assets. Aave and Compound are at $1 billion each. Remember, Maker's been around a lot longer. Right. Now, compare that to the world's current banks. 
the 100th mm-hmm. biggest bank in the world has $251 billion in assets under management. The 30th biggest bank in the world, which is Goldman Sachs, has $992 billion under management in assets, right? Remember, compound, $1 billion. The seventh biggest bank in the world, which is JP Morgan, has $2.6 trillion in assets. What's the number one bank just while we're Some Chinese stuff, I think. Like, I want to say it's a Chinese bank. And like number two is a Chinese bank also, I think. So that's just as a reference point that these these are babies, right? Like a billion dollars sounds like a lot lot of money. That's right. There's a lot of runway. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of runway. And that's what I mean by being early, right? Like this doesn't have to, Ave, DeFi doesn't have to take over the whole financial system. The 100th biggest bank in the world has $250 billion in assets under uh, management. That's a lot of money, guys. It's just these one percent of it, right? Exactly, one you know, percent of the pie. Tiny little percentage, exactly. All right, let's move on to exchanges. DeFi versus CFI. Centralized exchanges have more flexibility, of course, because they can give you multiple services. They can give you trading on margin. They can let you borrow. They can leverage. Um, all from one account. They can help you trade different coins, and it's real nice and easy, right? They have customer assistance. They'll take uh, responsibility for funds or sometimes hacks if they're a good exchange. Centralized finance also has fiat onboarding, which basically no decentralized exchange has yet because that problem hasn't really been solved. If you're trying to take fiat money and convert it into crypto, you basically need a centralized exchange. Yeah. The best way is like Coinbase pretty much. Yeah. I also use Cash App. Coinbase is good. Yeah. Honestly, I'm not going to like this. And I don't like it either. PayPal is currently the best way to do it. Uh, they are zero fees, but you can't move on it out. Any trade. I thought that. Oh, I thought they gave you custody. You can't move it out. I don't think. Oh, if you can't move it out, then never mind. I'm like, I, I'm banned, so I don't know. I can't. Check honestly, it out. honestly, PayPal is by far not in the top twenty ways. <laughs> if you can take no, it out of PayPal, they're number one. I just know that, like, my yeah, buddies if you can take it out, I agree. are getting it on there. Because it has no fees. So I assumed that they were custody. I guess I should have looked into that. Sorry. Do your own research. (laughs) Do your own research. All right. So the great thing about centralized exchanges is also cross-chain services. Like I mentioned, you could buy all kinds of different tokens. For example, Uniswap, which is the biggest decentralized exchange, it's only Ethereum to Ethereum. It's an Ethereum-based protocol to trade Ethereum-based tokens. Right. Whereas on a centralized exchange, you could trade Cardano for Ethereum, for example. Right. Right. Now, there's so many pairs, you know, but this has to be specifically Ethereum stuff. Have you guys heard of wrapped tokens? Yeah. I think that started with 0x. Like, now uh, we're going further back. The first time I used a wrap token was uh, what the hell is that thing called? I mean, zero X is like the the decentralized. It's like powering decentralized exchanges is what the coin does. But I think it yeah, has- Ether Delta was pre zero X. Ether Delta was like that really shitty exchange where you got the real I mean, crusty I coin. Agree, but I don't think it was pre zero X. But we could uh, we could have a friendly uh, seven Ethereum bet. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> yeah, friendly wager. What's the price of Ethereum right now? Ten dollars. Yeah, you don't know what the price is. It's it's yeah, at yeah, like yeah. four dollars. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but either either way, yeah, Ether Delta was one way you would just like hop on and like it was basically like using like you would use MetaMask for it. Well, it's essentially for the audience. Uh, I'm glad you guys have both heard of them, but it's essentially. You know, it's something like Rap Bitcoin is the one I'm going to focus on here, but it's just again to talk about how this space evolves. Wrapped Bitcoin is essentially a representation of Bitcoin on the Ethereum network. And the way that's able to be done now, Rap Bitcoin itself is not decentralized. There's something called the Bitco Trust. But essentially, you send Bitcoin to an address that creates a token, a wrapped Bitcoin on Ethereum and gives that to you. So now they're holding on to this Bitcoin, which you can get back in exchange for wrapped Bitcoin at any time. But now this creates a bridge where Bitcoin is able to literally kind of not really leave the blockchain because it's still there. It's still on the Bitcoin chain, but is able to exist on Ethereum and be represented and be traded. So for example, if you have a bunch of Bitcoin and you say, oh, DeFi is so cool. I want to participate, but I don't have Ethereum. Well, I mean, you can use your Bitcoin. Are they at a risk? Of course, this is a single company holding a bunch of Bitcoin. But this is just an example of how we can now start representing assets that don't exist in Ethereum in Ethereum. So I have, I have a quick little factoid, pop quiz. Where do you think wrapped Bitcoin ranks as Ethereum's like token, like rank-wise? Or we'll say, I guess, market cap is what, you know, would you uh, say it was like top 10, guess- top 50, like top five? Certainly top 10 because there's like $2 billion worth of Bitcoin in, of wrapped Bitcoin in existence right now. So that still puts it like below Chainlink and stuff. So I'm going to put wrapped Bitcoin at like number four or something. Brent, where are you at? Uh, but remember, Tether is on fucking Ethereum. So I said number four. Uh, I, I think it's got to be below four because off the top of my head, I don't know if wrapped Ethereum would reach Ethereum levels. So it'd be Tether. <laughs> I'm just laughing because this is like uh, it's like I asked you the meaning of life or something. You're really racking your brain. I I like the uh... <laughs> well. Here's the thing: I haven't been following enough points. There's got to be another stable coin on there. It's fine. It's fine. It's it's number All right, whatever. It's number six. I was just like yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Kind of actually, as of sorry, it's number six as of like two weeks ago. October 30th is when it says 1.5 billion. Wrapped big. Oh, way higher than that now. Yeah. Oh, wait, I mean, two probably, weeks ago. Two weeks ago, yeah. So, I mean, it could... It, it was like the fucking 80s. Well, I was just uh, Googling real quick on the fly. I'm sorry if I didn't get the... Tether, Chainlink, EOS. It's number four. No, EOS isn't still a... <laughs> <laughs> well, they have a real thing. Okay, then it's number three. But yeah, I was just trying to give it, myself number four. It's pretty crazy. So, for a while, I have some friends who are just very, like against Bitcoin Bitcoin maximalists because they just feel like Bitcoin is like the one true king and they just don't want to hear about any of the other projects. And they're just like, hey, when's Ethereum going to go to zero and blah, blah, blah. And like... I love those guys. They're great for the space. Yeah. These are your friends? And my friend, he feels like he's kind of an Ethereum maximalist to some extent. Like he believes in the product. There's a lot of like, you know, like he just believes in what Ethereum is doing and DeFi and, and, and all everything else. But I feel like just both of them are kind of right. You know, it's like there doesn't have to be a fight. 
and right, which is why they're both ball. wrong and they're yeah. both totally wrong yeah. because they're maximalists. They don't have to be, yeah, you don't have to be maximalist. That's what I'm saying. You don't have to be a maximalist but, at all. But it is really an edge to Ethereum here when Bitcoin is being wrapped and it's all like into Ethereum and it's almost one of the largest market caps. That's a cool, it like, is, you know, it's a hundred percent of Ethereum. It's also very cool that. Bitcoin can give Ethereum less than 1% of its market cap and it becomes the third or fourth or fifth biggest thing on there. Yeah, like <laughs> which is a Bitcoin is a titan, you know. Exactly. Bitcoin is a titan, Ethereum is a titan. You just got to respect the first mover, you know. Uh, almost all of the evidence that we have is that the blockchains are evolving into a world in which they're going to be able to interoperate with each other. I wouldn't be like, just like Bitcoin can come into Ethereum, I guarantee you Ethereum will be able to go into Cardano. And there's going to be all kinds of ecosystems and stuff. The the maximalists just don't make sense to me because I don't get it. I just don't get it. Yeah. It's like, it's like saying I, that there would have only been one internet company. It just doesn't make yeah, sense. Th- well, here's what happens. They get sold on blockchain in some way or Bitcoin. They might not even go as far as understanding what blockchain even is. And they just hear it's some money that you don't have to deal with banks for. And they're like, that's fucking great. And they just don't want to go past and learn either about what Bitcoin is or blockchain is or anything else. Because if they did, if they just learned about it, the, the maximalism isn't there. So the, But the, some of these are which, the biggest people in the space, man. Some of these are I know, like there's some huge people in space. That's where it breaks down because I see those guys and I think that they've done their research and they've learned about this stuff. And then they just like... This is their sports team. This is their Philadelphia Eagles. Like this is why they punch a hole in their TV. Like I don't know. It just, it, it, yeah. Some people like they're Bitcoin maximalists because Scientology didn't find them first. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe. I just don't. I don't oh, even. I mean, when I went to the it, when I went to the uh, convention, one of like the LA. I don't know. It was like some LA blockchain, and it was the first one that they ran. It was hilarious seeing like people that were like cons- I would consider Bitcoin maximalists, and they were just like very like uh, I don't know. It just felt like they just were like they had kind of like this ego about them that was just hey, this like I'm gonna dress how I want because I got rich from Bitcoin, and I got like you're gonna listen to me because like you know. And they like tether. There you go. I was like right place, right time. So yeah, but I mean, it's just keep your eyes. And ears open. There's always going to be something new and something crazy or cool. And you can't just can't just write everything off. Like, I mean, you definitely have a discerning, you know, eye, but don't just be so close minded. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Anyway, so, guys, we covered centralized exchanges. We'll move on to the what's happening in the. DC. I know this is going back a little bit, but what would you put the decentralization score for Ave double A.V.E.? Uh, on a scale of like A to D. <laughs> purple. Definitely purple. Purple. Definitely 14. Definitely I, purple. I do that to myself. I meant 1 to 10. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Look, so I tried to do some cursory research here on a bunch of projects, which means I didn't get to like dive super deep. But my understanding is that Ave is pretty decentralized. There is a team. There's a development team. I don't know how much of the funds they owe or what the direction, but like as a user, you're really dealing with a platform that's non-custodial, that you're interacting with smart contracts. There is heavy community engagement. So my understanding is that Aave would get a pretty decent score. 
like maybe like a seven or an eight. I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'd go with like an eight point three or something. <laughs> Adam's expert opinion from when it was Lend. <laughs> hey, um, you know, I I don't know. It's just I I'm I'm a UI guy. It's easy to use. You know, uh, they say, hey, you can stake here. Hey, this is how you deposit. Hey, blah, blah, blah. Like, I, I agree with you. you I, I also huge. like like the look of it. It's not very, like, it's like purple and light blue, and there's a little bit of orange. <laughs> I feel like, I, honestly, I know it sounds dumb, you know, but when you... No, the UI thing makes a lot of sense. The UI thing, but also just, like, rolling out, like, a good marketing, not marketing plan, but just, like, a good design layout, you know, yeah. website is very important to me. Design is a skill. You don't and want to shape product. You don't also want to design. were smart to rebrand from Lend because Lend is an SEO nightmare. You can't ever yeah. find Lend. You literally have to go Lend Ave every time. So now you're just, you just learn Ave, and eventually people forget about Lend. Think about Neo. Do you remember what Neo was? It was yeah. like ant shares. Yeah, ant shares. You know, there's just uh, I don't know. They didn't exactly get better SEO by going to like Neo. if you if you want me to do the non technical shit, like I am feel like I'm very good at rating that stuff. But like it's the you know the technical stuff will leave for Kareem and you. <laughs> Yeah, and, and even that's questionable. We don't really get too technical. <laughs> All right, guys. So let's cover how Uniswap actually works because it's interesting. All right. Uniswap started in 2018 and it's kind of like the king dex. Okay. And it was created by Hayden, Adam, Hayden Adams. Pretty cool. It was part of an Ethereum foundation grant. So whenever we hear about these foundations, see that they actually do uh, contribute to important projects, right? This was funded on an Ethereum Foundation grant. But essentially, it's really like the word decentralized exchange is tricky because really it's just a set of smart contracts that standardize how ERC-20 tokens are swapped, right? So each contract is just, they're all independent contracts that are those two uh, tokens that represent that one particular pair. So anyone can build an interface that interacts with the contracts. And if you're interacting with the contracts, you're interacting with all of Uniswap. But there was like a joke going around where somebody said, oh, they could shut it all down if they got Hayden, the creator or whatever. No, they couldn't. These are just smart contracts. There's all kinds of interfaces. You can go with the Uniswap interface, but anybody can interact with it, right? Uh, Crypto Twitter. You got to love crypto Twitter. (laughs) You control the assets at all times, all right? Anyone can list a token this is an upside or and a downside it's a downside because people can go and list tokens that are literally nothing create like a like a scam nothing project make it even look or sound like a particular project create a pool and just basically kind of scam anybody that makes the mistake of trying to interact with that contract and buying that useless token but it's also a positive thing Brent, do you, I mean, you, you weren't on the podcast, Adam, but you might have heard about it too. I don't know if you guys remember back in the day, it was like getting listed on exchanges was essentially extortion. It was like, oh, you have to pay us like this yep. much money to be listed on the exchange and they got to decide who went on and who didn't. And, you know, it was kind of BS. Yeah, it was like a give us a donation and then we'll decide whether yeah, you're yeah, like. 50k Ridiculous. to be considered to like apply to be like an exchange. X or something. No, no even good exchanges. No, it's Binance, bro. Good exchanges. Oh, yeah. It was just like if you want to be listed, you got to give us a ton of money because otherwise, they just were able to 
you know what? Let's put it nicely. They were able to maximally monetize their position to their maximal <laughs> advantage and not necessarily to the maximal advantage of everybody else, developers and consumers. All right. So pretty interesting there. The other cool thing about Uniswap, as people might already know, is that you can provide liquidity pools. You can supply capital. So you're not just uh, necessarily like doing a bid-ass things as we talked in previous episodes where there's no market maker here, right? The way that Uniswap essentially works is a mathematical equation. It's like a chart. I, oh, I, I just realized I didn't share the outline with you guys, but I'll share this chart. But essentially... You could just imagine like it's meant to the price automatically adjust as a ratio of one token or the other. So the more that you buy token A, the more that the price of token A in relation to B will rise. And the system basically balances a little bit itself by changing the ratio. But because it's a smart contract and because it doesn't have price oracles, it's essentially relying on the market to maintain its price stable. This part's kind of important because this is where impermanent loss comes from. Essentially, the way that Uniswap, the smart contract, is able to maintain a decent price is because when there's an imbalance in price, there's someone there to arbitrage that difference. When that person arbitrages that difference, that's money that they take out of the pool, and that's profit that escapes the liquidity provider's revenue or opportunity. But of course, the benefit of being a liquidity provider is that anytime that there's a swap, you are the one that gets to charge the fees. Every time there's a swap on on Uniswap, there's a 0.03% fee, and that fee gets distributed amongst liquidity providers based on how much liquidity they provided. But I'm going to just one more time explain that impermanent loss part because impermanent loss is an, an important concept, right? Essentially, imagine if you had Ethereum and Chainlink, right? Or Ethereum, yeah, Ethereum and wrapped Bitcoin or whatever. Do we get to imagine having it at the beginning of the year? Because I would really like. Yeah, absolutely. That. You've had it. <laughs> you've had it since two thousand nine. <laughs> so, if you have Ethereum and you have Bitcoin, and Ethereum stays the same, but Bitcoin blows up in price, right? Bitcoin goes from a thousand to two thousand. Let's say you had a thousand in Ethereum, a thousand in Bitcoin. Bitcoin blows up to a thousand and two thousand. You are not going to have three thousand dollars because the price of your Bitcoin doubled. But what's going to happen when you are providing liquidity is that as the price of Bitcoin goes up, there's going to be an imbalance in that ratio of Ethereum and Bitcoin. You people supplied them equally, and one of them is going up in price, so there's kind of an imbalance, and there's going to be market makers there ready to swoop up and buy that cheap Bitcoin because Bitcoin is going up in value, but it's still the same ratio of Ethereum. So they're going to buy it. And it's essentially going to cancel out a lot of that growth. So because the liquidity, the markets on Uniswap rely on market maker, on people to arbitrage the price and keep it stable, that arbitrage costs you effectively in permanent loss in the long term, especially when one token goes up a lot more than another. Because you, by not having just held it, you provided it on a free contract for anybody to buy. That's the way to think about it. You put your wrapped Bitcoin and your Ethereum in a contract and allowed anybody to swap either the Bitcoin for Ethereum or the Ethereum for Bitcoin. Well, Bitcoin's blowing up in price. So a bunch of people came in and took the Bitcoin, right? You gave up that right. So you're missing out on some of those gains. That's what impermanent loss is. 
that makes sense? Okay. Okay. So that term is being thrown around in the space as a cautionary tale. I don't know. I wonder how many people actually understand that. Because I've seen that on Twitter a lot. The reason it's a cautionary tale is because people can actually, this can actually make your investment lose money, right? Because you can be in a situation where the fees you're collecting don't account for how much somebody was able to arbitrage you and make you lose money. And there are certain price situations that make impermanent loss way worse. So the ideal situation is for the prices to stay relatively the same as a ratio. So if both of the coins are going up or if both of the coins are going down more or less at the same rate, or they're both staying flat, then the liquidity providers are generally doing fine because they're collecting fees and the ratios are constant. But the more that the prices diverge, like one coin takes off or one coin tanks, then those arbitragers are going to come in and they can really punish you. And it you becomes, can, hunt- yeah, it just becomes useless to even be farming at that point. Like I had one coin, I'd say the worst one that was at 250. I started farming and earned like three or four of them. It was cream. And then like it just kept dumping. And unfortunately, I didn't really know enough about the project and probably should not have invested in that. But like it was just like, Someone told me it's a good one and I trust him and stuff. <laughs> you know, and that's kind of a slippery slope where ultimately <laughs> you really do just need to do your own research, you know, um, because like it's the guy that we generally trust. And then I later found out that apparently Cream was like the guy who headed Cream was like a, or someone is like, like a known hacker. I don't know, like something that they did in the mm-hmm. space, whatever. But like, it seems like it's doing, it's at least like sustaining now and it's still existing and they're still working on it. So whatever. But it literally went from 250 to $25. And it's like, if I am putting in five, if I buy five cream and then I have to like do the liquidity pool with like, you know, USD or whatever, at least that's safe, you know, but then you are losing. So like, yeah, it goes, like I basically have, 1250 that I put in of cream and then it's not worth $125. Like that five cream that I made is completely useless. I'm still down like 80%. So yeah, that's kind of just how I know. Like that's what I think of when I think of impermanent loss. Um, I want to speak real quick on do your own research. This is just on top of my mind. We've said it a hundred thousand times on this podcast. And then I went through 2020 And I need to put a a new caveat on this. Do your own research correctly. I cannot tell you how much it pains me that the mantra of the people that think Bill Gates is trying to put fucking microchips inside of us is, oh, yeah, do your own research then. (laughs) Figure it out. I did my own research. I know what's up. So I do want to just um, kind of go a little more on a, uh, maybe not a tangent, but I'm going to build on that. So there's this guy, have you heard of Jonathan Bales? He is a big like daily fantasy sports guy. He used to play poker a long time ago. And he basically wrote this article that I thought was like exactly what literally every American, you know, I feel like just yeah, what we're going through with what you're saying to build on that, Brent, it was it was just so perfect. I'm trying to look up the – I'm buying time right now because I want to look up the title. But basically, he just wrote on how to parse information, how to read stuff, how to 
understand what you're reading in a better way. And I just thought that that was, oh, it's called, it, the art, it was called How to Determine What to Believe. And that really is the hardest part about everything. That's why people think that Bill Gates is like a lizard vampire. I don't even know. Uh, there's all these, there's so many different, and now it's harder than ever because of all these different mediums that you can get information from. Also that we're bored because we're just staying in at home all the time. But I, I would highly recommend like checking out this article. It was really helpful and just telling me how to, you know, showing me, even though like, I feel like all three of us are probably better than average at figuring out how to get through, you know, what we're reading and, and see what's bullshit and what's not, but it still is very helpful to just read. And I would recommend Only because it. I'm willing to challenge my assumptions. So you, you have to get past that. You can't be researching to confirm. You can't look at uh, Ave and say, man, Kareem said, this is a good coin. I'm going to go figure out why he's right. Yeah. Don't do that. Remember the story oh, yeah. about me dumping a thousand. Just try to, find information that shows that he's wrong. The correct thing to do is go find the information and then figure out what's right, what's wrong, and put on a spectrum how right you think Kareem is, that Ave is the most advanced, what was whatever the statement you made was, the most no, advanced I, of the lending platforms. Yeah, it seems to be one of the leading ones. I'm, I'm definitely not or recommending. Also headlines. Headlines are a big thing. That wasn't a buy recommendation, sorry. No, yeah. yeah. We all just read headlines and we just go on about our business because there's so much information that we're taking in. We can't just look at everything, yeah. read every single thing, and we just see for what it is, a freaking headline that could have been doctored in some way, you know? And this, so, and this reminds just, me, too, of the social dilemma. I don't know if you guys saw it, but definitely Oh, yeah, I saw the social dilemma. Totally. I completely yeah. agree with that. Um, you know, there's just a lot of things that we're going through that makes it even harder to like to get past the smoke and mirrors of, of everything. It's tough. Even hilariously, the social dilemma being touted by the people that I believe have fallen for the social dilemma. They've fallen for the manipulation on the highest level. So it's interesting. Yeah. To, I mean, yeah. I, I, it's, sad, look, it's, it's, it's important to recognize though, the impor the real lesson there is that we are all at different levels being manipulated to different extents and influenced to different extents. Maybe some people are falling really hard, but these techniques are also having effects on us, you know, and mm -hmm. it's just something to think about, but I am so, going to anyway. force us to bring it back. And, and do your own research correctly and maybe read Adam's article on how to do that. Yeah. I know this is yeah, probably going to end up being our longest episode uh, ever. No, no, not our longest ever, probably like second longest ever. We're at like an hour and a half right now. Yeah. I, I, well, that's only because the first half hour we got disconnected. So I. No, no, I, no. That's, it was like 20 minutes. So it's oh, like yeah. a little over an hour and a half. I, dude, Jason's going to open this thing up and he's going to quit. Like on the spot. He's going to be like, okay, first of all, y'all aren't even paying me. Second of all, what the fuck is this three hour long episode? No, no, no. We're not going to get to three hours. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna blast through this thing. We're kind of getting. We're rounding third. We're rounding third. Yeah, we're rounding. Yeah. Uh, anyway. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Oh, God. All, right, all right. So another, another decentralized exchange, just to give you kind of a little bit of a different perspective. There's one called Curve. Curve is also very popular, very important, actually, very in what it provides. It's a decentralized exchange like Uniswap. Just, but it exchanges stable coins only or coins that are stable in relation to each other, right? It's not Uniswap, like not in Uniswap because, you know, Uniswap, it's like just ERC-20 tokens. When you swap an ERC-20 token, you have to do two transactions. 
curve actually has an algorithm that gets to focus on different things because it's focusing on stable coins. There's no price change extremes. There's no real kind of fears of impermanent loss. So they can focus on having like less slippage. They can focus on, they can basically make it more efficient because it's geared for a specific niche. So Curve is more like where you would trade DAI for Tether or where you would trade wrapped Ethereum for Ethereum, right? But it's kind of the same concept as Uniswap. And it also has a governance token that is also used to incentivize providing liquidity. At some other ones- point in the future, they'll have the yen tokens, stable coins, and all that stuff, I imagine then. Probably, you know, if they ever exist. Probably, if they can get on there, they will. Yeah, as long as it it has, as long as their price is going to remain close in value, then Curve is good for them. Anyway, there's other exchanges like Kyber, Banker, Ren, but we're not going to talk about everything. This is just to give like a little sampling. All right. Hey, we've got a Kyber 101. You guys can go. That's right. To that. You can go check that out. We did that with one of the team members, actually. All right. The next topic: oracles. These are very important. These are a very important Lego block that all of these things are connected to, all right? Oracles link data sources from the outside world, like the internet, into the blockchain. Remember, blockchains, right? The security of the blockchain is irrelevant if the data that the blockchain is being worked on can be manipulated. The Oracle problem, right? Like Ethereum can have all of the amazing immutable this and this and this and this and this. But if Ethereum is going to go to Brent's computer to get the price of Bitcoin and I can hack Brent's computer, then it doesn't matter how safe Ethereum Mm -hmm. is. Totally irrelevant, right? I'd also like to speak really quickly that I don't believe that there are any Oracles on NEO, which I think is a punk, considering how important the Oracle was to that story. (laughs) Uh, good reference. Took me a second. I was like, isn't there an Oracle on you? (laughs) All right. There are different types of Oracles. They're centralized, decentralized, human Oracles, contract specific Oracles, Oracles ran by companies, by communities, by individuals. We're only going to talk about Chainlink because again, I'm just touching on the main ones and Chainlink is definitely by far the main Oracle. And Potato, if you're listening... I know you asked us to do Chainlink a long time ago. So this is like the closest we'll get to that. All right, buddy. So I actually remember kind of shitting on Chainlink. Not really like the project, but I remember there was like this this article that everybody went crazy about. They're like, oh, Chainlink was picked up by Google. And I'm like, no, Google just like said that this is a cool decentralized Oracle. And we, we kind of made fun of that. So anybody who was going to buy Chainlink then and then didn't because we made fun of it, oops. <laughs> yeah. Go with us. Nah, well, Chainlink is... That would be me. Thanks, Brent. Appreciate that. No. Thanks for making fun of it. Guys, we're still, I was about to buy. We're still super early. Brent, don't feel guilty about Adam's yeah. situation. Um, <laughs> okay. To put things into, into context, again, I don't want to make it sound like I'm picking favorites here or whatever. I already filtered it by picking which projects I was going to talk about. Right. So these are all pretty cool. Chainlink is kind of a big deal. It really is. Almost all of these decentralized things that we're talking about, like Ave and Compound, and we're later going to talk about Yearn, all of these need to know what the price of these coins are. And Chainlink is 
the main one that a lot of these ones are using that's decentralized. Okay. So the concept of Chainlink is simple. You know, as we mentioned, a single centralized oracle is a point of weakness that can be hacked, that can be manipulated. So the solution Chainlink provides is that it is a decentralized network of nodes that basically get data from the real world. It's able to compare it, and then it can provide that information to the from off blockchain sources to the smart contracts on the blockchain. All right, it's not centralized. Anybody can create a node and participate become basically a node, an oracle, and take part in the network. There is complete abstraction to connections in the outside world. Like literally any data source you can imagine, they can, there can be an oracle for it for, for Chainlink. All right. There's a reputation system. There's also a penalty and collateral system that ensures that oracles don't lie and don't cheat. This is how they basically keep themselves honest. All right. And the process is essentially, again, we're not going to go all the way in detail, but a smart contract puts out a request for information and Chainlink looks at that request and creates like a three layer service agreement where it first takes the reputation to analyze which notes are best suited for the task. There's a bidding system. Then those notes go out into the real world and get the data. And then they bring it back and the Chainlink system essentially aggregates, compiles, compares, uses all kinds of fancy blockchain stuff and gives the Oracle. And this is a decentralized kind of safe system. All right. They're doing more than that though, right? The link token itself is basically what you need to stake to participate in the network, which would be slashed if you behave inappropriately, if you lie on a data point. It's also the currency that the contract is paid in. So that's what causes the link price to go up as it gets used more. But um, they're expanding beyond Oracle. So Brent, you'll appreciate this one. Chainlink just released their, uh, their verified random function. So now you can get a verifiable random function on chain where you can actually verify on chain that it was selected randomly. This is a new Lego block that now other projects are going to be able to use when they need to insert randomness in a smart contract. Creating an entire process that can verify randomness is very, very difficult. But I right. random, we think of random, like you go on Excel and you type in random or whatever. Very few computers have the capability of creating a random number that's genuinely random. Correct. And it's even harder to prove to somebody else that that number was selected randomly. Real quick, I one day looked at ultimate bets, like random, like I got, I looked at all three, like poker stars, and I forget, but I think it was ultimate bet that like, they were using, like, and granted, it's possible that it's specific because they weren't exactly a trusted site, but it's possible it was BS. But it was, like, something that I was, like, unheard of, like, never. I can't even really recall what it was because it was so they, like they, they used what was the equivalent. This is so weird. We must have talked about this. This is why. But no. Never. They used the equivalent of shooting a laser into a lava lamp to to do their random number generation it was a plasmatic rhythm and then again this is a poker site that ended up letting people see their see whole cards of other people so you know who knows how how serious that was but it was the first time i looked into how hard it was to create random numbers i think they did a lot of content about how good their randomness was is why we both know this but yeah it was ultimate bet had a very specific crazy way to generate their randomness. Yeah. 
Like I believe that that was a, that that seemed like that was like kind of legitimate from when I was reading about it and like plasma dude and and I'm looking at it right now. Um, Poker Stars is it's like they're using like quantum theory to figure out a random number generator. So just to just to go back to what we're talking about, what you're talking about, Kareem, and to understand people whenever because like if you never actually think about what a random number generator is and how hard it is to make, like. You just think it should be easy. Just randomize. Like, what the fuck does that even That's mean? That's right. And it's not easy. That's you right. Know, just to clarify what you're talking about, what Chainlink apparently is, has now accomplished. And the reason it's so important, by the way, is because if you try to launch something that requires randomness, like a poker game or you know some kind of lottery system or something, and it's not random, even if you're not trying to be deceitful, trust me, someone who is smart will figure out that your stuff is not random and exploit you. They will game the system because that's the beauty of randomness. It can't be predicted. Things that aren't random have more predictive patterns, right? And guys, the fact that Chainlink can now give this as a decentralized service means that think about all the things that can benefit. For example, if your project wants to run a lottery, if uh, you have games that want to have random loot, if you have governance rotations, for example, imagine that maybe you need to select judges or a panel or or the person who's in charge for a hearing, how can we make sure that it's random? Think about all of the applications that this Lego piece provides, right? So it's kind of a, you know, again, significant big deal, Oracle's chain link. We're going to move on. This one's really not something that I find particularly interesting, but I wanted to mention it to show the breadth. There's already insurance, and it is very relevant. There's a company called Nexus Mutual that is already starting to offer smart contract insurance. What is a smart contract insurance? Think about it. You can literally, for example, if you're investing in a liquidity pool, but it's a new project, maybe you can you can go on Nexus Mutual and try to get a smart con uh, an insurance program that covers if a, if that smart contract hacks. They won't cover you if the price drops. They won't cover you in a bunch of other situations, but you can basically get insurance for specific smart contract related things. And the interesting thing about Nexus Mutual is that it's, I don't want to say necessarily decentralized, but it is kind of membership driven. So you have to be a member. You have to participate in the system to be able to get insurance. And then the System as a whole, people get to talk about claims. When there's a claim, instead of just going to like some insurance auditor, it's going to the holders themselves of Nexus Mutual who are deciding whether or not to pay out an insurance claim based on the details. And that seems like a backwards uh, incentive structure. Like if you had some sort of treasury of funds that you have control over, wouldn't you just want to default to not paying them out? I well, again, because you're trying to create a product, right? So the people, ultimately, the people who are members of Nexus Mutual and hold Nexus Mutual are going to make the most money if they grow to billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars of insurance coverage, right? Yeah, I guess that's so true. Their, yeah. their incentive is to be a good company that's competitive and wants you to give their business. If their policy as a community is to just screw people over constantly, they're not going to get to that scale. So the thing that makes it interesting is precisely that they have to balance the growth of the ecosystem with paying out claims. And it gets even more interesting with them. Like you can, for example, by staking, you can basically select the contract that you want to cover. Does that make sense? 
Like maybe you feel good about a smart contract and you're like, yeah, this this insurance that's being requested, I want to stake it so that you know your stake is linked to that. So that if there's a hack on that, you pay, but you get to benefit from the rates. So again, decentralized smart contracts. And it, it becomes very interesting. And now that you can have, this also creates, for example, the opportunity for a team, not just as a consumer, maybe a team can get insurance on their own smart contract to reduce oh, risk. Oh, yeah, yeah. They can, or give some more uh, confidence in the project. Exactly. You exactly. Know, this many, this much in the way of funds to get this project started. We're going to put half of them on an insurance claim or whatever the case. So I think that's cool. It's worth mentioning. We're down to our last three projects that I want to talk about. So we're- Last we're, three? Last we're rounding three. first. We're, we're down to our last three projects. Last three last projects. projects. But one of them is going to be a quick mention like Nexus right now. That, we don't All right. Okay. Detail. All right. So the other thing that has started to develop that I want to talk about, guys, is- aggregators and automation. And the project that we're going to talk about as the archetype for this is Wi-Fi or Yearn Finance. Okay. Now, this one is really interesting. It has an interesting history. It was developed by Andre Kronge. And essentially, yeah, well, he's interesting. But essentially, he was participating in all the yield farming, right? And because he has a lot of experience with Ethereum and smart contracts, there's a lot of people in his life that also have him manage their crypto money. And he had it all on stable coins and essentially was playing the yield farming game where he was constantly moving the coins around to wherever the best interest rate was. Makes tons of sense. But with all this moving around, he basically figured out that he was getting tired of it. And started to figure out a way in which he could automate it. But it ended up becoming a crypto project because he also realized that with more size and more people, you know, economies of scale will essentially benefit. So he created Yearn originally as an automated system that would look at, let's say, let's say, for example, we have DAI and we look at, okay, who's offering the best rate for lending DAI? And if today it's Ave, we put our money on Ave, but if the interest range changes next week and now it's way better to go to compound then we go to compound right because all of the different platforms have the way in which they calculate rates so he started automating this process and opened it up to the community and a bunch of people basically came in and started participating and it grew up into this thing like this kind of i don't really know what to compare it to to me the closest thing is something like vanguard you know, that that does like the index funds, or maybe this is like a new version of some kind of aggregator. I'm, I'm not sure how to describe it, but what's also really cool about Yearn is it had what's considered the, the real fair launch, which what Andre did was he figured once the protocol was growing, he's like, all right, this needs to grow, you know, this needs to have some kind of governance structure. So he minted the Yearn token, only 30,000 of them. That's why Yearn has such a high price compared to other tokens. It has very low number of tokens um, and it was distributed to all of the people that were participating in the project already. There was no ICO. It wasn't sold. There was no pre-mine. There's nothing like that. Basically, when he launched the the protocol and people started kind of using it, there wasn't a governance token. And then when he decided that it had to be created, it was distributed to the people that were already there. And then the price kind of you know, took off and then it burst and all that. So to give you an example of some of the other things that it can do, it's not just that 
you can take stable coins and switch around between the different pools to figure out where you're going to you know provide liquidity and automating that system that's one of the things it does but then yearn came out with vaults and vaults are token specific pre-coded strategies so what is what do i mean by that well in the other example we're talking about supplying die and just moving it around from where you're lending it but with the vault you can use strategies that automatically grow your position in a particular token let's say for example that we take an Ethereum vault, right? And we take a bunch of Ethereum. We create, there's an Ethereum vault. And what it does is you supply a bunch of Ethereum. The vault takes a huge chunk of that Ethereum and converts it to DAI. Then it goes to an ETH DAI liquidity pool and supplies it, right? Then ETH DAI, da, 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 then it collects fees. And then it takes all of that, all of the fees that it earns and it buys more Ethereum. And then it just basically repeats this process. And you could do it with different coins. Develop, developing strategies is one of the big things. So people in the community in Yearn, anybody who can come up with a good strategy that can implement it, they'll you know create a vote. They you know, have to vote on it or whatnot. But you can create a new vault that has a new strategy that takes advantage of the ecosystem in some way. It can go to different protocols. It can go to Compound. It can go to Aave. It can go to Maker. It can mint die, it can take out a loan, it can supply liquidity, but then it kind of circles back in such a way that the position, the main position, whether it's Link or Ethereum, keeps growing. It sells the profits to buy more Ethereum, essentially. So what Yearn provides with these vaults, it's kind of an opportunity to have an automated system to grow a position. Now, there's layers of risk, there's smart contracts, you're interacting with other platforms, which means that... If there's a hack on Aave, maybe that could affect Yearn or one of the vaults. But it's, needless to say, super interesting because who's not interested in automation, even if it costs a little bit of efficiency, right? The Wi-Fi token is the governance token. There's a treasury. The fees that the system collects are distributed between the people that created the rewards. And it's just interesting because it's kind of community-driven. They have developers. They have marketing. There's nothing that interests me more than a fair launch. So many of the coins that when we did our 101s interested me, things like Nano or whatever, were the ones that didn't have the stupid fucking ICO that caused the craze kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and you're not alone. And a lot of people love Yearn and kind of love Andre precisely because of this. Because realistically, he gave up millions of dollars in equity Mm -hmm. doing it this way, you know? So... Yearn is interesting. Uh, they have other things, and they're also one of these programs that has like a clean interface and stuff. Their price, the token price, the governance token is one of the most speculated on and swingy tokens ever. So don't, if you don't like stress, don't invest in Wi-Fi. <laughs> but <laughs> but it is very very interesting. All right, we're down to our last two. This one I'm going to mention briefly. You mentioned it before, Adam Auger, right? Because now we're going to talk about trading. Augur, well, that's kind of weird. I didn't expect Augur to get a mention in this. Here's why Augur is going to get a mention in this, because it's a decentralized trading platform for trading futures, making bets. It's like predicted or something like that, but mm-hmm. it's decentralized. So I'm just and mentioning- it requires oracles. That's right. It requires oracles. And for those of you that, know, that don't know, Augur is basically a place where anybody can create a prediction market on mm-hmm. anything. And then people can bet on it. And the idea is that there's a concept called the pool of wisdom, 
right? Which is that all of us together with proper incentives to actually give our best guesses, help us uh, have a better idea of how things are going to play out, right? Yeah. And like, I, I've watched how predict it works. I don't know if that, uh, <laughs> I don't know if that ends up being accurate. No, well, I mean, of course, and especially with highly political things, you know, that we, we are an uninformed populace that gets manipulated and we also don't, didn't have great poll. I mean, that's a whole nother concept, right? But the idea here is that Augur is decentralized and that just like some of these other protocols, it creates economic incentives to create liquidity, to incentivize the creation of markets, and to have participation. And I was able to download like a cloud of like what the main things of the prediction markets are. And most of it has been actually sports, just like soccer, football, right. Premier betting, League, yeah. Champions League, some Bitcoin, some Ethereum well, you know, stuff. I made a blurb uh, a little while back that was like, will Trump die before he leaves office or something? Yeah, right. Heading on that. Right, right. So Hilariously, really I mentioned predicted. I just went there. I wanted to see currently an election that has already been decided in the United Still, States. Still... 8%, Still right? has Trump at 13%. 13%, of course. Of course. Just a casual 13% chance of a coup in the United <laughs> States. <laughs> That's it. Nothing to see here. All right. So last but not least, I saved this one for last. I won't spend forever on it. I just think it's so fascinating. And I want to make it clear. When I say that I think this is fascinating, I'm not saying, oh, you need to go buy this project. because No, I'm just. I just think it's super cool. I think you guys are going to appreciate it too because of our backgrounds. I love it. All right. Synthetic assets. How familiar are you guys with synthetic assets? Or is this uh, synthetics? Is yes. That your, yeah, we're going to talk about yeah, synthetic. I mean, I don't really get it. I just see like, you hey, will. you can bet on to get it. It feels like it's an option that like you, you, uh, mimics what that – I don't understand it. You're going to get it. You're going to get it, and it's very cool. Brent, in the real world, are you familiar with synthetic assets? Maybe I am. I don't think I have not heard the term before. If it's something I, I, like an option, maybe I am. I don't know. I had not heard the term synthetic asset. I didn't know that synthetic assets were a thing in real finance, but they are. So synthetics gets its name from the real world's synthetic assets, which have been around for a while. And I went and got a definition. And I want you. I want to point out that there's a very important word in this definition. So quote. Financial instruments engineered to simulate other instruments while altering key characteristics constructed to feed the needs of the investor. Okay. And so would a here, tracker stock be considered one of those? Probably. Because I, th- I owned right. party poker tracker stock like 15 years ago. So because we couldn't buy it in the US, it was overseas. I bought something that tracked it. Uh, maybe that maybe that's what yeah. I bought. That's 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 something very similar. I went to Investopedia, which is I have found to be a pretty good source to educate myself on on financial stuff. And one of the main things that Investopedia said about synthetic assets is that they were. Let me read the quote: "Synthetic products are custom designed investments that are created for large investors. Large investors. So the beautiful thing here." Is that something that existed only for large investors? It's getting a blockchain makeover and possibly making it available for everybody. So synthetic assets, just like you said, Brent, it's precisely the idea that we can represent an asset in some way and trade on it 
without having to have the asset ever in our possession. Okay. So it's not really, again, it's not really the asset, but a synthetic representation of the asset. So the way that synthetics achieves this, and again, this is not an in-depth guide, so I'm just going to try to give you a big picture. Essentially, synthetics creates a giant pool of money, which banks the entire synthetics ecosystem. All right. Just everybody that is staking synthetics or putting collateral, it all goes into this giant pool that we're all responsible for, right? Anybody who's staking in the system. And in order to, one of the things that they do is in order to get your staking rewards, your collateralization ratio has to be 750%. That sounds really high, right? Remember maker, it was 1.5X, that's 150%. In synthetics, if you want to be a staker and get rewards, right, there is a 750 collateralization rate that you have to maintain. It is a lot, Brent. It is a lot. But here's where it becomes really cool. Synthetics, it looks like a trading platform, right? Like If you go to it, it kind of looks like somewhere to trade or an exchange. But what it actually is, it's a asset minting system. You are not trading with anybody. You are creating tokens. You're bringing them into existence. There's no counterparty, right? Or the counterparty is the entire synthetics ecosystem, right? And it can work literally with any price feed. So here's the way that this works, essentially. If I want to go print some synthetic Bitcoin, we'll keep it simple at first. I want synthetic Bitcoin. So I go to synthetics and I literally... Mint for the price of Bitcoin because there's Oracle fee, there's price feeds, right? So for the price of Bitcoin, I buy a synthetic Bitcoin. That Bitcoin is created and I am giving an SBTC token, synthetic Bitcoin. All right, great. You don't have to put up 7.5 Bitcoin to get on Bitcoin, right? I'm a user. The people who are putting 7.5% are the stakers who are backing synthetics. They are, let's say, the shared collective owners and they make synthetics run. Now I'm coming along as a user or a consumer of synthetics and I want to have a synthetic Bitcoin. And actually, let's not make it Bitcoin because Bitcoin's on blockchain. I actually want to make it something random. Let's say I'm not in traditional markets, but Adam, I want to bet. what those fucking cards you had earlier? The let's price of oil. Let's say the price of oil. Let's All say right. the price of oil, right? So the price of oil is at $40 a barrel and I want to bet on it, but I don't want to like go buy oil or go buy some stocks or whatever. I just want to do it quick and easy. So I go and mint the synthetic asset oil, right? Now what ends up happening is that if the price of oil goes down, then that's no problem to the people who are staking synthetics because whatever, like they're kind of making money. They sold it to me for 40 and when I come back, it's only going to be worth, let's say, 35. How did they but decide it, what to sell it to you for? Just their- no, no, it's you're when you're minting, you're using the price feed, what the price is, right? It's looking at a bunch of price feeds and coming up with an average to determine what the okay, price so you of can do oil it on is. Just anything, there has to be a price feed for it. There has to be price feeds, and there have been certain assets that have been created, but not everything, everything, everything has been created. But the you know, kind of like the markets have been created, but there's more and more assets. But you'll see how it gets really interesting. I haven't gotten really to the to the juicy part. But on a basic level here, if I if I mint the oil, if I lose money, no problem. I come back and there, the synthetics ecosystem basically gains five dollars if I mint the oil at forty, and then when I cash it in, it's thirty five, whatever. But if the price of oil does go up, let's say now that twenty dollars goes up, well, basically there's a system of debt in the system where that twenty dollars comes out of 
all of the pooled money that you guys all put up as stakers to 750% collateral. So my asset has plenty of room to go up in price 2x, 3x, 4x, and the system can absorb it. But overall, the system is making money because assets are going up in price and down in price that more or less cancels out, but it's collecting fees every time we mint, right? So it's like kind of like a trading situation. But the part that's really cool here is that, again, there's no counterparty. You will always be able to sell your token because you're literally just redeeming back your synthetic asset, right? There's nobody who can decline the trade, right? That means that there's no liquidity. Liquidity is infinite, so to speak, right? Oh. The protocol is really making money from fees and it's distributed to the stakers. And they only need 7.5 times leverage to accomplish that. Well, you have to think about if you're doing stock style stuff, like doesn't it almost always go up? Well, it it depends on a bunch of different things. I think there's a time uh, limit on the contracts for some of them. I think I'm not 100% sure, especially on the because I was about to say this. The interesting thing about this is that you can mint a short. Instead of minting gold, you can short gold by minting an asset that has an inverse relationship to the price. And it doesn't exactly work like a short. You can't keep it forever, basically because of what you just mentioned, Brent. But it has a pretty long profile. And the reason they can probably do seven and a half fix is because only a few assets are likely to have that kind of explosion. It's not like the whole market's going to have that explosion. And also the liquidity providers are maintaining that ratio because I'll put it to you this way, Brent, if you supplied liquidity at 750%, you were staking and you provided 750% collateral. If the price of a couple of assets went up and people cashed that in, you would have to put up more money to maintain your collateral. And Mm -hmm. the system will show you how much that is. So the stakers themselves are kind of maintaining the ratio to make sure that the system is balanced. But what's cool here is that the synthetic asset can be a long or a short, like we mentioned. It could also be a basket. So the synthetic asset for a DeFi index has already been created. Mm -hmm. So instead of investing on Aave or on Compound or whatever... You can buy the synthetic asset, which is a composite of Ave Compound Maker and Yearn, for example, or whatever it is that they chose to include on there. So this is essentially creating the possibility for an entire market system that's going to have indexes, that you're going to be able to have shorts, that you can go long without ever trading with anybody, completely permissionless, not having to go through any KYC. No government can stop you anywhere as long as you have access to the Ethereum blockchain. This is... I feel like this is super cool and that the potential is like huge. That is pretty sweet. So since we've had this episode, I've been introduced to a bunch of new things. I've got <laughs> a list of like things that before the Andre, just the, whatever that Andre thing. Andre Crunch, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That Before that, I would have already had them bought by the end of the episode because we had two hours here. I had plenty of time to buy the shit. But now I've, I got to double check Kareem and it's going to be a whole thing. <laughs> yeah and by the way the last thing i want to say is about synthetics you guys both saw the big short right yes yeah do you remember how like the guy who figured it out he shorted he made the right short position but then because the banks were going to get screwed they totally screwed him over and waited like super long to report and the right thing basically do fraud Liquid- with investors to exactly trying to pull out and he's like no fuck you i'm not giving you your money Right. So the banks were totally screwing him. So yeah, there exists the possibility for a short, but because the short went against the banks, they tried to screw him over. 
if that had been a synthetic acid, there would have been nobody to stop him. He would have just well, been right over to the minting system. An example of a synthetic acid because well, he created that. But if it had been on the synthetics, that's right. Platform, that's <laughs> right. If he had minted it on synthetics, he could have cashed in whenever he wanted. There would have been no counterparty risk, no centralization, no greedy bankers trying to screw him over. So I'm just trying to use, like compare it to a real world example. I'm not saying we're there yet at all, but this is clearly the beginnings of something new. So the only thing I I still don't really get synthetics. That's okay. Uh, I mean, like I kind of understand what you're saying to a point, but funny enough, I I was talking about baseball cards at the beginning of this podcast before we started. And uh, there's this website called Starstock. And basically what you do is you ship in your cards and you trade on their platform once they have their cards, they just move your cards. If you buy cards, they just move their card to your your like yeah. pile, and it's like you're not actually dealing with the 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 issue of having oil, you know, like having have magic cards at one point. And the name of that exchange was the Magic the Gathering Online Exchange for short, Mount Gox. Mount Gox. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Ever heard of it? So anyway, guys, that is, I know that was super, super long, but we had a lot to cover. Don't even know if that'll be two episodes or one, but I hope that gives you kind of like an overview because the main message I'm trying to say here is not, hey, look at this project. The main message I'm saying is like, hey, look at this ecosystem and look at how much further we've gone from where we were, how real things are being built, how they interact with each other, how many, how much innovations here. I mean, Brian, let me ask you this at the end of this conversation. Do you, it doesn't this seem more like innovative than the ICO craze, like in a very oh, yeah. real, tangible way? Well, then, then again, every ICO taken in and of itself felt innovative, but when you look back on it, it was terrible. But here, all the There's ICOs, working products. like we know why that, that kind of failed. These are all working products, yes. Um, for, for the listeners who may have gotten on our newsletter, I sus- I've already sold two of my assets from that newsletter. I had Stellar and Nano, which I have removed from my portfolio. I don't know. We'll see if uh, I move any into what Kareem just said today. I don't know. We'll see. All right. Well, we've been here long enough, so we'll definitely do some wrap up. Guys, any any thought, any final thoughts that you guys want to share? I know I hogged up the I mean, you, you, We just spent two hours and change on a podcast, and there's still like, we didn't really talk that much about sushi, which I think is super interesting. We didn't really talk that much about I mean, yams, which is like using the rebase thing, which is another thing I don't really get. Um, then there's I didn't like, mention Ampleforth, which was the one that basically really brought in that rebase, and yeah, it is really one, interesting. Like farm that, like, and farm. sushi is a is a clone of Uniswap. But Adam's right; there's so much. Yeah, um, I, I almost feel like the story of sushi is interesting in itself, but it's definitely very important to still be doing your, like Brent said, do your own research. What was what was the the caveat or the but do it right? Do your own research correctly. So D Y O R C D D York, and he's right. And um, it's even more important than ever to hop into these things with a grain of with a not a grain of salt, but just step into the water. Don't just dive into the deep end. <laughs> Good you advice. Know, it'll take a little while. And for me personally, I lost some money. 
doing things that I knew that I was doing it because I needed to learn how to do it. And now I know how to, you know, pull like make a LPs liquidity pools. I know how to do like all these random things. I know a lot about the DeFi space randomly, obviously not as much as Kareem, but no, you know, like I still, I, I've become just by doing it, I, I've learned, but you should still be careful and yeah, don't get too deep. Adam and I have both been burnt. <laughs> <laughs> and the only uh, thing stopping me from getting burnt was that Ethereum participation. was so high yeah. that I couldn't do it. I was trying to get burned. All right. So, Kareem, what's the price of Bitcoin right now? Uh, isn't it like uh, $18,000? Uh, not bad, not bad. Seventeen six, but not bad, not bad. All right. Ask I me would... again in five minutes. dollars <laughs> 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 All right. All right. Well, thanks for sticking with us on this episode. We haven't put one out in three months, but we gave you two and a hours and 15 minutes or something like that of pure Kareem content that should make up for all of our uh, transgressions. So reach out to us if you enjoyed it. Our Discord's still there. People still exist in our ecosystem. We uh, we love the fact that you guys listen to our stuff. So keep it up. And we'll We'll, we'll put it out there every now and then. You never know. Make sure you're subscribed because you never know what can happen. I agree. All right. We're not fucking financial advisors also, Jesus Christ. Uh, the, <laughs> no, we we talked about a lot of projects. of all time. Yeah, well, you know. It's, it's all like, good. It's all good. I you can wanted curse. to remember. I almost forgot. Brent's mailing it in at this point. We're not financial whatever. Full disclosure, it's 2.43 a.m. But if we didn't get it recorded, uh, we were just weren't going to be able to. So seriously, guys, thank you. Brent, I know you're in another country. You could be partying. Uh, Adam jumped in last minute to literally just to make this happen. So thank you both. And thank you for staying with us and listening. And uh, we hope you learned something and you can use this as a reference point. Okay. Catch everybody on the flip side. See you later. See ya. See ya.